most people who study abroad, right? Like uh, there's a lot of people who study abroad in college. A lot of times they pick somewhere sexy like Europe or whatever, but, um, and then they, they finish their degree and they come back and they, they pepper it into conversation for the next 20 years. Uh, not to make fun of anyone who's listening. Who's but, 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 but before you go anywhere, what, what is not sexy about Uganda? Hey, everybody, we're back for another episode of Growing Up Christian. I'm Sam. And Casey is not here with me today. He is uh, on vacation with his wife doing stuff. Whatever stuff that is, is between them. And they can tell you about it later. I don't know. It's up to them entirely how much they want to talk about all the stuff they're doing. But I am joined here by my buddy, Aaron. He was on uh, your fellowship. I think it was our last one. The most recent one. Five fellowship. Friday fellowship five. So he's here hanging out with me for the next 15, 20 minutes while we introduce our guest but not yet because we were at a renaissance fair this week Aye, it's true me lass and ladies ye old renaissance fair um <laughs> and i had never been to one i've been meaning to for quite some time aaron that you were a uh, experienced goer at this point right i am uh growing up in maryland my parents took me to the renaissance fair on the regular that one's pretty large um, I always try to figure out, I can't figure out if the Renaissance fair is like, what kind of crowd is it? Is I feel like it's like a NASCAR crowd plus, uh, D and D crowd plus LARPing. Yeah. That's there's a- some people there that I didn't expect to see. Um, <laughs> and then there are some people there that I didn't expect. There were some people who weren't there that I expected not to be. Let's be honest. It was mostly a white crowd. <laughs> <laughs> I, t- I thought that to myself. I said, am I, are we celebrating white culture? Is that what's yeah. going on here? Ah. Dressing up as characters. And yeah. Watching. Okay. A couple of things that I want to talk about from the thing, because so I'm glad I went because I've, like I said, I've been wanting to go for a long time. I know a ton of people who have you and your wife go regularly, uh, not regularly, but every, you've gone every year for a little while, right? Okay. That's correct. So it's like, I, I had to check it out. And I probably won't do it again. Um, and, but I feel like that's just cause I'm not the right kind. I don't know. Maybe I'm just not the right kind of person for it. Cause the whole time I'm there, I'm like, this is cool. I mean, I don't, I don't have any other Renaissance fairs to compare it to, but I mean, you walk through like this castle gate entrance in the woods and there's like the, a build out of a village. I mean, it's all lumber build outs of like mm-hmm. an old town and i i know there's renaissance fairs that are set up what more like fairs uh where you would have like pop-ups and tents yeah. and stuff like that yeah, small but, so this is like you walk into a village uh that looks like it would have been from ye olden times and it looked awesome I, as soon as i as soon as i walked in there i was like i, I think i'm into this uh <laughs> and then so we saw four shows uh well three and, three and then the, the beginning of one um, <laughs> and all of they were good. Like, so th- the first one was just like, fine. It was a little weird, uh, but it was funny enough. The mud, the mud dudes. But there, like, there was one with like these, the, the one with the, the washing wenches and who pulled guys up from the stage and made everyone feel really uncomfortable. They were absolutely hilarious. I thought they were great. 
I want to talk about the joust because what, how, what do you think about the joust? Do you, are you a joust guy? Are you, were you feeling the joust? The best part about the joust is it's entirely rehearsed and scripted and they do like feats of skill where they put the little hole, they put the little javelin through the hole a couple of times when they ride by. And then each one of the little knights has a little persona. Like they had like Juan Don from Spain. They had uh, Jamie from Mythbusters. At least that's what yeah, I thought. Dude, like. I thought that. I meant to say it. He looked just like Jamie from Mythbusters. He had the beret kind of style yes. hat. Yeah. The yeah. sloppy hat or floppy. I don't know. And then like the giant mustache. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, bald. But like, the best oh. was the best was the lady from uh, the green team over there. The green team. I was thought she the green? Lady was the yellow team. She was the yellow ranger. <laughs> but she did good, man. She was she held her own, and then her horse like tripped up. I know that was crazy. Off. It was scary. I was like the only real thing that happened. To me. So that's why <laughs> I was a little like, I I legit thought I might be watching a real joust where they like really knock each other off their horse. Of course, that seems really dangerous, uh, which is probably why they don't really do that. And it turned out jousts are basically like WWE of the Renaissance. Yes, that's basically what it is. <laughs> it's like this. It's like the like you said. They have their personas, and it's a little scripted. Yeah. And someone goes off the rails and like yeah breaks out a sword to start fighting somebody. Ooh, like, and then the one guy like he had him down, but then he like rolled and then grabbed his sword and put it on him. You know, at the very end, like he, he thought our right, guy was gonna lose, but then he like rolled rolled off the ground and jumped up and had him or whatever. It's it's awesome. I love it. <laughs> they have a couple of like javelin throws that they like they throw the uh the uh joust. Yep. Is, that, is it the joust thing? And then guy rolls out of the way of it and it's a little <laughs> weird, but the, the guy it took me out, man, because it's like here's the joust back and forth, and then there's a little bang on the shield with the, the jousting stick, and then it's like <laughs> I throws his weapons in the air. And he, and then, well, it's like, funny because he like throws his one leg over. He <laughs> like throws his leg over and then falls. <laughs> it was funny. And everyone, but I was like, oh, every, this is what I don't get. Like, cause I don't, I never gave a shit about wrestling. I didn't watch WWE. Like, um, I watched it. And I feel like everyone who's there probably also liked wrestling at some point. That we're getting into it because they're at like the Renaissance cheering fan? on, yeah. Well, no, yeah. at the joust, they're like cheering on certain characters, yeah. and then one guy they're like, "Boo!" There's gotta be like a German word, you know, those long German words for this, where it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a thing that everybody knows is fake, but is still acting like it's not fake, and we all <laughs> are just kind of sitting around watching it. I, I think of the Bachelor and the Bachelorette. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even the people in it know it's fake, <laughs> but they there's, still roll with it as though it's right. real. There's, there's got to be a big long German word for that, like Schwerdenfergenergen or whatever. <laughs> and it's just like an instance where everybody knows what's happening is not real, but we all act like it is to have escapism. <laughs> we chose, we choose to suspend reality for a brief moment collectively. Yeah, but I mean, there's that. We do that in movies and theater. <sighs> it's it's violence is what it is and yeah it's violence and in bachelor and bachelorette it's heartbreak and so everybody knows that that conflict it's that that base conflict is 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 fake yeah but in order to have the story that we want we have to fake that conflict and violence in order to have the story that we're looking for and, and there is this like i feel like uh, maybe not in the bachelor or bachelorette i've never watched those but when these live events, I feel like there's that like 
feeling there is still that feeling of something could go wrong and it could yep. go out. like like that girl's horse her horse it, the, her the knees of her horse buckled and she went straight over the top of that horse <laughs> and face first into the dirt and was like on the side like they were like with a bloody nose like holding the rag up to her face yeah like, oh but yep. that could have been really bad right that could have right. gone and so when it happens everyone goes from like they're cheering and they're booing yep. and they're all in it and it's the theater and then it goes, and I guess that's what it is. It's theater, right? But then when that happens, all of a sudden yeah. you hear the gasp <gasps> collectively <laughs> around and then everyone's like, wait, and see but they try to keep the show going, right? Because they don't want that thing to derail it. But right. then everyone's but, looking around. Dude, same thing happened on The Bachelor in Paradise one year. <laughs> okay. They were, this girl guy was in the pool and like, I don't know, something happened. They didn't t- say anything or whatever, but it, something like went over the line as far as like him being up on her and like. She like right. told the producers and he had to That's leave. Right. <laughs> so it's That's like the right. same thing. It's the, the violence and or heartbreak went too far and it disrupted the whole thing. I forgot. Cause there was, it was like a whole like me too thing around that season of the bachelor. Yep. Right. Yeah. 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 Okay. Man. So the, the last, okay. I'm, I feel a little bad uh, because the last show I think could have been cool. Um, oh, he yeah. did, Fire like eater, man. Eater. He did. It sounds like he like called people, like would like throw knives around people, stuff like that. Like kind of like your circusy kind of shit. And it was cool. But the guy was the worst person I have ever heard talk in my entire life. I hated him. <laughs> like, I, I that the German word there is Schadenfreude. <laughs> That's what that was. My, it doesn't. My, it doesn't affect me. I just watch him and go, man, he sucks. I just keep watching. <laughs> I, I, I was. My skin was like crawling i i felt like my insides were just turning out it was, he needed a writer or like a coach or something in that regard I, and so okay to, for the context he is like i don't know if anyone listening has watched i think you should leave with tim robinson uh, <laughs> he's a character that tim robinson would have played that you would have fucking hated you would have been like oh it's it's that cringe comedy type mm. thing he's like but i got a great deal on this shirt <laughs> <laughs> It's like the guy at the party who's like the worst. All that. So for anyone, I'm just gonna throw a, one reference out because if you've listened, if you've heard it, great. If you haven't, watch it. If you <laughs> watch it for reference. five minutes and you don't think it's funny, turn it off. It's not for you. It doesn't. <laughs> it, it doesn't change. It's not. It's like that's what it is. And uh, but he's like this guy at a party is holding a baby and his baby keeps crying. He tells everybody that every single person there that's like near him is like, yeah. Baby's probably crying because he can tell I used to be a total piece of shit. And <laughs> it's like everyone's like, oh, okay. Like you don't know what to do with those kind of people. You're like, oh yeah. And he just tells everybody. And they're like, can you okay, can you drop that though? Like And then he goes we, into detail. And then he won't just he won't let up. <laughs> and he reminds me of that guy that he's doing there. Like, but back when he was a total piece of shit. And he just has all these jokes about like eating his wife out and being really good at it, but saying it in a way you're just like, he's like, yeah, the, you guys are great because the last crowd, I had some people walk out because they were offended. Well, now we have a good time because you guys are funny and you get jokes and you're like, fuck off, dude. Are you in middle school? It was it was awful. And he, he was like a writer. doing eating fire and shit like that. And he has Stuff was awesome. I was yeah. so impressed by it. Yeah. And Aaron was the only one who wanted to stay for it. <laughs> our, we were there with our wives and they would have. Um, your wife was very like, this sucks too. She was not feeling <laughs> it. 
Jill definitely would have just stayed if we, everyone wanted to. But as soon as I was like, I can't do it. I'm out. I can't fucking handle this guy. And I guarantee he thought I was walking away because I'm easily offended. And I don't understand his kind of humor. Oh, my God. It was just pathetic. I hated it so much. I he walks around it. telling people that his humor offends, offends people when it, we're all just leaving because he sucked. Yes. <laughs> it's just not funny. It was like I've never watched a comedian bomb, but now I know what it feels like to watch a comedian like, bomb. Like that, if you went to an open mic night and that guy came out, uh, it. oh, my God, it would have been. It would have made you, it makes you, the listener, feel embarrassed and uncomfortable. And yeah. everybody knows that feeling when you're watching something. If you want to feel embarrassed and uncomfortable, go to the Renaissance Fair and get a um, shipyard pumpkin ale. And the girl asks you if you want a rim job. <laughs> Did that happen? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it's what it is, they put um, uh, cinnamon and sugar on the rim. Yeah, I never heard anyone call it. Well, I mean, outside, I've heard it in unprofessional settings. Like, oh, you, want, you got the rim job. Cool. I've never heard someone who's well, I was sitting there and getting one. And this like middle aged dude was like, do I get the do I get the rim job? And the girl's like, I don't give rim jobs. <laughs> I was like, Ooh. And the, the time I got it, she just goes, you, you want the rim? And I was like, yeah. So, so I guess it's just like. You know, who for whoever it wants to be for, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So after drinking all those, we w- went out went out to eat. That was great. I want to make it clear: I didn't drink Shipyard Pumpkin Beer because I do hate it. <laughs> I don't really care if, if I liked it; that'd be fine. It's the best I, pumpkin people, beer for people sure. People like to shit. No, it's not. People like to shit on pumpkin beer. Like they like to shit on pumpkin spice, like every day. I mean, pumpkin. It's people. You should be a little embarrassed if your like identity is wrapped up in your fall pumpkin spice blends <laughs> i really can't do but they didn't have a dude that was one of the that was one of the disappointing things there yeah i kept they, talking they, about killian's trash and they didn't have any somebody mentioned it too i was in line where's the killian's oh so they had that last year but it was um it was basically a hard cider a mead that they were like out of mm-hmm. i guess they probably like uh making because we were there the last weekend yeah uh, that they had the last day of the last weekend i think yeah, sucks too. I was supposed to um, interview one of the people from the thing, and she never got back to me. So I'm gonna have to try again next year for my other podcast, Pilgrim's Tigers. We'll call her out. What's her name? Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> right, so we want uh, to eat. We got to talk about the hotel, man. Mm-hmm. So, <sighs> God, do you want to take? Do you want to talk about that? We went out to eat. Had a great time. Um, but bef- oh, before we went out to eat, though, we did, yeah. we went to the hotel to check in, and we were having the. Worst time checking. So Aaron and his wife got the hotel room, uh, all the rooms because Aaron's brother and his wife came with us. And uh, so we all they, they got the hotel. They took care of the booking and, and we just did the whole reimbursement deal. And what happened was like the third party company they booked with sent the money over to the hotel for two rooms and not three, but not. Th- yeah. And then they're trying to say that, like, we'll charge you to Aaron and they're even though they were already charged for all the rooms by the third party company. And they're like, you just have to call them and get reimbursed. It was a joke. It was wild. She said out of her mouth, she said, we ran their credit card and only two rooms came up and, but I can't get a hold of them. And I was like, I, I basically said, well, that's a you problem. Yeah, that's exactly what I said. You, you started laughing. You're like, that sounds like your problem. Like, why that's do between, I have to pay for that's your between problem? You and them, right. Um, so uh, we're lucky Chad wasn't there, Aaron. We're lucky Christy stopped me because <laughs> <laughs> my brother would have get it get after him. Uh, 
And we're lucky we probably only had like a few drinks at the Renaissance yeah, store because they were ten dollars for like a twelve ounce <laughs> fucking beer. Uh, update on that, by the way. They the other company emailed us and said, uh, "Be on the lookout for your reimbursement in ten days." Oh, good, because we were on the like. Jill ended up calling. Yeah, she's for you guys. She's baller like that. Yeah. Then that was Christy cool. ended up having to talk to him for a while. And at the end of that conversation, it seemed like absolutely nobody was getting a refund for anything. Yeah. So if you're looking for any sponsors, booking.com is what I use. <laughs> <laughs> That's every time we went somewhere, dude, and, and, it, and I chose it or whatever. I've always went through booking. And the thing is, whenever I go through booking, though, I never pay up front. That's why I never pay up front. I always pay when I get there. Oh, yeah. He holds it for you. Yeah, that's right. That is n- more uh, normal. What was the third party website? So I don't know. Avoid it. Uh, oh, I well. forgot. I wish I knew. All the other um, ones except Booking.com. Booking.com. Give a Growing Up Christian a call and Pilgrim's Digress. Yeah. Booking.com. <laughs> but what was wild is right next to us, there's another another uh, group. Oh, yeah. It was too. Like, Did you hear their problem? Like, yeah, yeah. It was like two older, not older. I don't know. They were like two older ladies, I guess. Probably like, who cares? It doesn't matter. They were just friends. They were two older friends. Maybe they were sisters. I don't know. But they, they were, were French. Like, she said that. Okay. So they're like trying to get their room and the, the people are like, okay, so you got the, the king, the king room. And she's like, uh, no, we <laughs> booked two queens or two fulls or something like that. And they're like, uh, no, the, the, you, you booked through a third party company. So that all that does is just hold whatever's available. And she's like, that is not what happened when I booked this room. <laughs> Like I booked two beds where two adults, two grown adults who want our own beds. And they're like, well, we don't have any other things available. If you want like you, you can't reserve that through a third party company. And we all know that's horse shit because <laughs> that's everyone uses third party companies. So then they're like, uh, what the, the woman was trying to give him a hard time about. Oh yeah. She goes, you should have, uh, you should have booked through us. And then, and then you would have been able to reserve the room you wanted. She, she goes, mad. you can't, if you go online to book a room, you can't book through the holiday Inn. you have to call the holiday Inn, and nobody does that. If you want people to book through you, make it available to book on your website. And she's like, I, sorry, there's just really nothing I can it's do. It's just one of those things where the market is like, they've got you by the balls, you know, like, or, yeah. or, you know, uh, genitalia of your choice. Uh, <laughs> uh were you i mean what are you gonna do go there and sit down and call the other hotels and see if they got anything open right there yeah dude yeah. what was nuts for you guys is they were trying to say that the, yep. the cost you booked the rooms at was too low and they'd never book rooms that low like <laughs> fuck you then stop working with these third-party websites i don't know what to tell you i didn't yep. that's dumb dude but then to top it all off we woke up the next morning we're tra- talking about going oh 8, where are we gonna 10 get breakfast a.m was it it was earlier than 10 wasn't it 8 10 a.m oh 8 10 yeah yeah uh the fire alarm goes off <laughs> i was like is this serious what's going on at I first like, i thought i was like man i did take a hot shower and i thought we had set off the smoke alarm and so i was now, like oh shit did i just do the whole <laughs> my my the alarm in our room was not going off which means it was broken because it was going off in everybody else's room You're right that's <laughs> if true. i was in a dead sleep i would yep. have slept straight through that Yep. If the building was on fire, I would have definitely died in the middle of the night. Yep. Because it wasn't that loud. I mean, hotel rooms are pretty sound. Uh, they soundproof pretty well. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you can hear somebody fucking real hard on the other side of the wall. But other than that, <laughs> pretty good. Yeah. But dude, having to leave 
to the fire alarm going off. I mean, we were there. just sitting around like waiting, ready yeah, yeah. and waiting. So we were like, oh, guess it's time to go. <laughs> I guess it was like a leak. They sprung a leak or some shit in the first yeah. floor. Yeah. But it was like the hot water tanks. <laughs> so like uh, Aaron's brother walks into like, and <laughs> you don't have to return the hotel keys. Like, those little, like <laughs> yeah. Like cards that you tap or whatever, but he was bringing it in because he thought he needed to. And um, he said he walked into the first floor and like it steamed up his glass. Like it was so hot in there. Like the because the hot water. Not a good day. And, I'm, uh, I'm, so I'm sure they're still de- dealing with it now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they're still oh, yeah. dealing with it now. I, I, everyone on the first floor got flooded out with hot water. It was cool. It was a weird experience, but it was a great weekend. I mean, and it was the first one I've had away from, you know home without my two kids two mm-hmm. foster kids two dogs mm-hmm. three cats mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. all my other problems partridge in a pear tree yeah it was really nice to just uh i, I don't if, even if the hotel caught on fire and I had to like stop <laughs> drop rolling crawl still on the ground nice to time. avoid the smoke i probably still would have had a great time and but you would have still rather uh have not been watching that fire eater guy yep oh yeah that was <laughs> i want to find him I bet he has an Instagram page or something. Like I don't know how a show. There's got to be another fire eater. There has to be at least one other that can do that. He just needs a writer. Like that's all I could think of. Was like if he just had somebody that could help him like execute the jokes. You know, like the joke. The joke about the uh, 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 cunnilingus. uh, It could have been like packaged a little bit differently and delivered a little bit differently. You know. because he's had some know. calluses before. Remember? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> was, I'm, I like, trying to, I'm cringing like, already. <laughs> I'm, I'm already trying to figure it out. I was like, calluses in his mouth? I don't, on his yeah. fingers? What's going on? <laughs> and then he's like, and the, oh, you guys would have loved it. There's a woman at the last show who, who stood up and pointed and goes, that's disgusting. I bet he says that at every show, too, oh, dude. I bet that cool. never happened. And I bet you it never happened. Yep. And he's like, so I said to her and then said something really dumb. Oh, no, it doesn't matter because I, I there's no setup, so whatever his punchline was doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, but it was, um, it was just like he does this whole "I said to her," and it was like, I wonder if he'd do good with a with a uh, uh, sidekick or a partner, like doing all the talking. I don't think so. I think, I think it should be just, me. I think no, you don't want to be associated <laughs> with a guy like that. His personality is just awful. I think that. Um, I, and it's funny because, dude, I don't think that the audience was laughing that no one well, was going a crazy. big part of it. I mean, this is this is my my like OCD sensory thing coming through is like that other show on, on the other side of the stage. It was like a singing show and it was just like disrupt. It was cut. That sound was cutting through everything in that place. And yeah. it was just like I couldn't pay attention to what he was saying anyway. So the, yeah, I don't know. It, that <sighs> definitely helped for me. Like, OK. <laughs> I have something to be a little distracting. So <laughs> That's funny. But I couldn't. I had to leave. It was just too much for me. But okay. I'm going to go ahead and introduce the guest coming up. Uh, it is Phil Wilmot. Phil is actually an old friend of mine, which we get into a little bit. I've known him for a little bit now, quite a while. And I've been excited. I was like, super excited to talk to him. Uh, I've been trying to work this out for a while. He lives in Uganda, um, which I think we get to that maybe a little late in the conversation. I can't exactly remember. but. Um, He's just done a lot of cool shit. You know, he ended up moving over there in college for a bit to study abroad uh, and then ended up after a few series events, permanently relocating there um, and doing a lot of uh, nonviolence resistance organizing 
uh, and and he's still doing that to some degree today, but uh, a little bit less than it was before. And he's kind of looking to uh, see what's see what's next for him, really. But I mean, I, he's been such. Uh, he he's one of those friends that you have that's kind of an inspiration that you've learned a lot from that their life is and, and their work and their example is it meant a lot to me uh just to see someone really living out their their ethics their ethos and even at a cost to themselves uh and that's not super common in, in anyone's lives really mine whatever like i so it, it's cool to have to have maintained contact with him and, and to have seen the, the things that he's done. So uh, I guess before we cut to our conversation with Phil, uh, you're going to hear an ad from our sponsor. You should definitely check that out. Captain Cecil's they're great. Their coffee is it's incredible. Uh, and I think it'd be worth your while to go ahead and pick some up. Uh, check out Aaron's podcast, Pilgrim's Digress. And Go ahead. It'd be dope if you guys could leave us a review uh, on iTunes or um, maybe just a review, maybe a nice little write-up. But five stars always dope. Blurb. Write-up that talks about uh, nice things. If you don't like it, uh, you've been listening for too long and (laughs) you should have fucking bowed out already. Get your hopes down. (laughs) If you listen to this and then think, I should go write a really bad review about it, you're actually a piece of shit. So yeah, don't, don't do shit like that. That's fucking weird. I've never written a bad review for somebody who's just trying to do something cool. Like, so anyway, here's our uh, conversation with Phil Wilmot. Sam, temperature's dropping. Leaves are changing. I think we're well into the fall season. Yeah, uh, well into it. And the fall season where I live in New England is a premier destination point uh it's a lot of people's favorite time of the year here and it also happens to be my favorite time of the year and what's better on a crisp fall morning than a great cup of coffee if you're a coffee enthusiast you're gonna absolutely love captain cecil's coffee roasters captain cecil's is a massachusetts-based artisan roastery born out of a love for the sea and a passion for great coffee They offer a rotating menu of carefully crafted single-source roasts and blends tailored to the season. From the light, fruitful notes of empty gold to the nutty, banana bread warmth of Nobska, there's bound to be a cup of Captain Cecil's that's perfect for you. Empty gold is honestly uh, an incredible coffee. Uh, That and another one of my favorites is 19 Miles at Sea. Uh, 19 Miles at Sea is a little on like the kind of caramel nuttier side and then uh, Empty Gold. It's a bit on like the fruitier side. And I, I I personally just don't like dark roast. I like a light to medium roast coffee. And those two are fantastic. The huge hits at my house. And we would have friends over and I, you know, brew a pot of coffee and everyone raved about it. It's a big hit. I mean, they're just absolutely delicious. Nobska's definitely been the hit at my house. We absolutely love it. On top of great coffee, Captain Cecil's is committed to caring for the beautiful Northeastern shore that they love so much. 10% of all sales go to organizations like the American Lighthouse Foundation, who ensure the preservation of the historic New England coastline. So if you're ready to welcome that autumn breeze with a warm cup of Captain Cecil's, visit CaptainCecil'sCoffee.com. Enter the promo code GROWINGUPCHRISTIAN at checkout to receive 10% off your first order and free shipping on orders over $50. That's captaincecils.com 
promo code Growing Up Christian. Hey, everybody! Welcome back. We are here with Phil Wilmot. He is a not only a friend of mine, but someone who has a very fast on the podcast for a while. Um, you know, we've done a lot of Fellowship Fridays and had some people that we've known college and stuff. But uh, one of the things that's particularly neat about Phil is. He's someone who should be on people's podcasts, regardless of whether or not they know him or not, because he has done a lot of interesting things had a lot of wild experiences and um, for some good, some bad. But uh, I, um, I guess I'll just kick us off here with how Phil and I met, because I think it's a fun story. And so Phil and I like went, we met at a music festival in high school. Um, I was probably like 17. Phil, I think you're a little bit younger than me, right? Yeah, I think. A couple of years, maybe. I don't know. Age doesn't matter at the point. Uh, well, but, how old are you two? Yeah, <laughs> I know. We could, we could just say. We could sort uh, this out. Yeah. <laughs> Crush some numbers live. For I'm a Virgo. I just turned 31. Okay, 33. So, yeah, just uh, a little bit of a difference. But anyway, so meet at Purple Door. It's all like that heavy music shit that we've talked about Casey and I came up and um it we didn't really like we stayed in touch because of MySpace and stuff like that because you just added everybody on MySpace back then and then after you get rid of MySpace you lose touch with a lot of people as how things go and I, I kind of lost touch with them with Phil and um it was a good few years later I was at Liberty in college and a, a friend of mine said hey my friend phil's coming to visit and i think you guys would get along like you should come hang out when phil's here and then i found out <laughs> that this was the phil wilmot that i had met at a music festival five six years prior that i had completely lost touch with so um and it was ever since then that we kind of stayed in touch after that so that's a, a bit of potentially divine serendipity if not just general serendipity yeah yeah absolutely I guess but, like you would, you would think it's a small world, but then you realize like, you know, you're both from the East coast, you're both really into metal and you're both evangelicals. So, <laughs> you know, it, maybe it wasn't actually that, you know, like amazing that we kind of met, but it felt I, amazing for sure. Right. It's almost guaranteed that we all knew, or if we didn't go ourselves, <laughs> all new people who are going to Liberty University. <laughs> what, so, okay. So how at the music festival did you guys meet? Did you like, was there like a hole in the bathroom stall or? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, because how we met was really, really cool. Um, we were, so, so Purple Door is like a heavy music, uh, Christian heavy music festival in my home state of Pennsylvania. Sam came down from mass many, many hours. Um, and, you know, getting into the festival, there was like a, like three, four hour traffic jam. And so everybody just kind of swung their doors open and started chatting each other up. And uh, Sam liked my comeback kid shirt. That's right. Holy shit. I actually forgot about that. That is, I forgot about the traffic jam leading. the Cause then I actually like my first recollection of it was meeting inside and now I realize that that's only because we had had met prior. Like, I, cause we didn't just strike up conversations with one of the hundreds of people at this festival. I actually forgot about that part of the story. So that's super funny. So it was like a, a, Hey, Hey kid. Nice shirt. Yeah. 
Yeah, <laughs> that's which is like how friendships <laughs> got started back then. Yeah, yeah, it was. I was part of like a, you know, before there was like social media, there was like blogs and forums and stuff like that, right? And I was part of one where we would just like recycle our shirts, you know, for whatever cool band. Um, yeah. We would try to, you know, like buy like rare shirts just directly from individuals and you just trust them that you send them the money and it's going <laughs> to show up at your doorstep. That's right. Quite a different world. That's hilarious. So, Phil, why don't you uh, go ahead and let kind of give us a brief overview of what your I mean, I know you grew up evangelical um, and also in the South. I don't, I guess that qualifies as the South. I don't remember if you were above or below, but it kind of blends together around Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah. So technically I grew up um, above north of the Mason-Dixon line in the north, but culturally it was in the South. You know, it was um, particularly York County, Pennsylvania. You know, right now it has some of the most, uh, the highest rates of, of uh, COVID. Um, it's it's very historically racist. Um when my, when my parents, my parents moved to town when I was four. Um, so one of the stories that they often share is that, you know, my dad picks up this, you know, scrappy construction job or some kind of side gig under the table. And, um, one of his colleagues says like, uh, Hey, you're new in town. Are you going to join the clan? So this was just <laughs> like an assumption, you know, you've moved to Hanover, York County, Pennsylvania. You join the KKK if you're white and most people are white. Wow. So I That's kind of wild. like grew up like, yeah, I grew up like very close to all this kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, my, my parents are not clan members, thankfully. Um, <laughs> okay, so you're going to have to clear that one up for the audience. They're going to want to know. Yeah. Just, just, <laughs> yeah. Let me put that. Yeah. Let, let me just at least give them that little tiny, tiny credit of not being clan members. Um, <laughs> you know, we can, we can talk about, um, you know, passive racism and like, you know, anti-racism and deconstructing, you know, white privilege and white supremacy and all that. Um, but, um, yeah, that was like very shocking to them. Uh, I think they like, weren't really aware that this was, you know, a part of the world where this is so common, I guess they were kind of like blissfully naive. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I was definitely told that story more than once. Um, and uh, yeah, like grew up in a church that, that, that was evangelical, fundamentalist, fundamentalist, evangelical, fundagelical, something like that. Uh, it was an evangelical free church, you know, headed by an old white man with a lot of, you know, white families that had been there for who knows how long. Um, and ironically, you know, one of those a lack kind of freedom. Of, uh, sorry, what do you mean? No, just is it evangelical? Oh, evangelical free, free church. Yeah, this, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Lack of freedom. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like so stoic, so like rigid. You know, the the culture of church is is you know show up and smile, put on your best face. You know, wear a collar. Uh, my my dad's rule was that his kids aren't allowed. His boys are not allowed to have hair touching their eyebrows, ears, or necks. Um, so I got clever about that as I, as I grew up and I, I got a mohawk, you know, uh, <laughs> fit all of his rules. Um, so as a kid, I was like, you know, I didn't, there was nobody in church my age. So, you know, I was, I was always just sort of like, why the hell do I have to go to church on Sunday and wear a turtleneck and sit and listen to boring music when I could turtlenecks. be listening to awesome music? 
um, you know, why do I have to go and sing with the younger kids in Sunday school or, you know, pretend to care about the Bible with, you know, older kids, you know, it, it was, it was just a bad experience for me. Um, so I did grow up evangelical and like sort of surrounded by all these boring people um, and didn't really necessarily connect with their values, but, you know, I was taught that these are the correct values. They're, they're right. They're mm -hmm. what get you to heaven. You know, um, these are boxes that you have to tick in life. Um, so did yeah, you believe that, was, that then did you believe? Yeah, like, of course. Okay. Yeah. You yeah. have that so like I, Christian punk mentality sometimes of kids who grow up there and they're like, I don't, I don't buy it, but you kind of toe the line for a bit. So I wasn't sure what your level of. Well, yeah. Yeah. No, I think um, maybe the, what, what kind of shocks me sometimes is that when I reflect on, you know, my youngest years, like the real scandal is like how obedient I was, you know, um, <laughs> I always found ways to kind of like conform to the rules and make sure I was doing things right, but sort of like a little bit on my own terms. Um I don't think I got like openly, you know, defiant, rebellious or, or whatever until I was really in college. Um, but, you know, uh, high school years, like, you know, go to school, work hard in school, go to church, go to youth group, do all those things. Yeah. Um, yeah. I had my, you know, minimum wage dishwashing jobs in the evening. So I, I think I, um, you know, with some exceptions, like, I think I was like a really good, you know, Christian upright kid. Yeah. But so you went to Christian college uh, and that's when things started changing. Yeah. I went to Messiah university um, also in central Pennsylvania, closer to Harrisburg. And I studied theology. Um, and later on, I, I picked up peace and conflict studies Um yeah, it, it was an interesting school. I think it's a, it, I still think it's a good school. Um, it's, it comes from like the Brethren in Christ and Anabaptist tradition. So that was very different in terms of values and culture from, you know, the, the kind of um, evangelical community that yeah. uh, had raised me. Yeah. Anabaptist is like, I mean, one of the things is nonviolence, right? Is that an Anabaptist belief or is that just some Anabaptist? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's very central to to Anabaptist values. So they they believe in you know uh, religion as community. They believe in you know sort of like ethics and and central to that is like the Sermon on the Mount and the Gospels, as opposed to you know fucking you know whatever Leviticus or whatever bullshit <laughs> I was raised on. Um, and and then nonviolence is kind of like one of those those other uh, core core pillars, traditions, beliefs. Um, Which is although, a funny you know, thing to hear when you grow up evangelical. Like, I, I, I mean, I remember the first oh, yeah. time I was like, I was presented with a, the concept of Christian nonviolence. Oh, wait, so you're saying that you shouldn't join the military and that uh, self-defense killings? You should, I, I'd like, you, it throws yeah. out like a whole wrench in the works. of Totally, totally, totally. Absolutely, it does. I, um, I think I hadn't realized until... Um, my university days, like how deeply ingrained, like the white settler narrative is with like, like, you know, like nationalism and, and American exceptionalism and all that stuff combined with, you know, militarism and violence. Like I never really kind of put these things together until, um, 
not only I got exposed to Anabaptism, um, I'm not an Anabaptist, but it, it did really influence me. Um, I'm not a Christian either. Um, but like I was at my mom's place um, a few years back and I was kind of like digging around in the attic for like old stuff just to kind of like find what memories that I could. And I came across this uh, Awana handbook. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I was like raised in Awana. My, my first kiss was in a place called Cubby Cove, which was like, you know, deep in the, uh, you know, the basement of our church. And uh, <laughs> yeah, like, I, I, you know, I, I, I was raised like memorizing, you know, Bible verses that um, didn't really mean anything to me, but it was important to memorize them, you know? Um so oh, I found I this old uh, Awana handbook and I, I'm, I'm just like curious, you know, I had, I had already, you know, for several years been on my path of deconstruction and all that. And I opened the, the first page and like it, <laughs> the first page was about, um, you know, it was like this Columbus kind of narrative, you know, like, uh, like we arrived in America, God bless America. Um, America's God's nation, like before it said anything about, you know, like Christian beliefs or, or, uh, Bible or the Bible or anything like that, you know, that, that was the, the first thing. And, and I remember thinking like, this book is for like six year olds, you know, this is like for very, <laughs> yeah. very young, like it, it wasn't like a high school level one. It was like one of the younger ones and it had the pictures of the boats and everything. So, you know, um, this was like, you know, very much the narrative that I was like, you know, spoon fed growing up uh, intentionally or not. And um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, getting older and having the opportunity to, to, uh, to challenge those, uh, you know, deeply embedded um, indoctrinations, you know, um, ha has yeah, been sure. good. Um, it, you know, like I, I often, I often kind of like think about it, um, in terms of like, you know, the attitudes that are on display during like family reunions and like being taken to, to meet family. And, uh, you know, they have a similar narrative. It's like, you know, we come from the Wilmot family or, you know, such and such a people. And we came over on the Mayflower and we, you know, we're so important and we've always been a Christian family. And, you know, there's this sort of like air of like, what, whatever we got going on in our lives, we know that we're like the in-group, you know, and we come together every year to kind of celebrate that we're the in-group, not really oh, to wow. care about each other, you know, but, but to, to kind of like know that we are chosen in a way. That's super interesting. Wait, you are, are you telling me for real that like your family, or maybe it's more of a myth, but your family heritage goes back to the Mayflower or is that just like, was that I? Some sort. that's the story yeah no no that's that's uh, wow. very much the literal literal story that we are told yeah we had just talking with uh talking we had just spoken with someone recently for an episode um who was mormon uh and one of the conversations we had was how it seems more common for mormon somewhat common for mormons to go say how far back like their generational mormonism is um and how i had never actually heard of anyone in where i grew up how i grew up no one ever talked about how many generations back they're christian or anything like that but uh that's what's super funny about you mentioning now is this is the actual first time i've heard someone mention their family lineage kind of being taking that as like a badge of honor like oh we go this is how far back our lineage goes 
this is how far back our Christianity goes. So that's really funny timing because I'm new to that concept in mm. Christianity. I think that stuff has always been a big part of I don't know, any group. I mean, it's it's how you kept the tribe knit together, you know, back when that was critical, right? It wasn't like, it wasn't all about loving each other and, and engaging each other in a, in a relational way. In some, some cases it was more like, Hey, you're a part of the group. The group sticks together. When the group has a problem, you jump in and you take part and stuff. And I feel like right now, like, especially as, as the society, like globalization and stuff takes over, it's like less and less important and more and more problematic to keep thinking in those terms, whether you're talking about, you know, your, your religious affiliation or your family heritage or whatever it is, whatever thing you've incorporated into your identity, like it's cool to respect your heritage and it's, it's interesting and fun to learn about. And it's, I think it's good to take pride in that stuff to some extent, but to do so in a way that's, that causes problems between you and the and people outside your group, I think is the is where we're running into trouble now. You know, I don't know. I'm maybe I'm rambling, mm. but there's definitely an extent to which, like, saying that you're the it thing uh, becomes exclusive or oppressive to others. And I think you know, especially if you came over on the Mayflower, there's kind of a responsibility to like question your family history even if you can't get to the bottom of everything to like recognize like the privileges that you have to, um, you know, work to undo uh, injustice and to build up a more just world, you know, like you, you, you have like more power because of um, what's been handed to you. And I think also like um, inheritance, you know, like essentially capitalism, uh, you know, multi-generational wealth is like one of these things that sort of, um, does the the work of pride for us so we can kind of like maintain this this kind of like self-righteousness you know um you know i uh, yeah especially especially in sort of like today's especially for americans i think that you know kind of divested historically from this whole you know i'm part of the royal family the queen yada 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 like americans aren't really into that you know they think of themselves as these like rugged individuals um you know, so they don't want to like point to, you know, my father did this and therefore I am important. Um, but I think, you know, basically like the privileges and wealth that are inherited across generations does that work and kind of creates this veneer of, um, of morality, you know, um, and not, not enough people really deconstruct that. So you're saying like the inheritance meaning like, you know, because of your family and, and their social status or economic status or whatever, like you, you grew up a certain way and you got to live a certain lifestyle and stuff growing up. And that in and of itself separates you from like consciously or subconsciously, like that separates you from other types of people. Yes. Um, and it also allows you to pretend that you are not separate, even when you do have those powers and privileges over others. Um, you know, those things, it, it's, it's like we can kind of willfully kind of just believe that we live in this vacuum. Every, every, everything else is even. 
you know, um, we didn't do anything wrong as individuals. So therefore there's not this kind of like responsibility. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to look different for each person. Um, and I think we, you know, we really have to like recognize like that, uh, you know, we are like the individual is an abstraction. The individual is fundamentally an abstraction. You know, we are parts of something. We are part of a tree. We are part of a community. We are part of a people, many peoples. We are part of a history, you know, we're part of an economy. Um, and I think the narratives that Americans in particular are given uh, make it very easy for them to divorce themselves from, from those rea that reality that they're tied to other things. And even now during the, uh, during this pandemic, of course, like, you know, the polarization of society is really going through the roof. Um, we're more and more able to kind of, you know, uh, insulate ourselves against the responsibility of being part of something that's more than ourselves. That's why, you, you know, people can't have hard conversations face to face. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll create like an alias and troll some people on Twitter or whatever. <laughs> yeah. That heavily resonates. Uh, I feel like that's very uh, part of the, very much part of the zeitgeist of making. I mean, just people in general having uh, with people about them, which really has been happening. Uh, has been growing since people, especially millennials and, and Gen Zers, have been having faith shifts and things like that. Even more challenging conversations to have than than political ones, uh, which is interesting. But they're and often not had like people are just not having it's kind of like bubbling that is also a lot of words to say i'm sorry i joined the clan phil yeah i'm sure there are many people that um yeah would feel heavily inconvenienced to <laughs> you know to say something that simple you know and and walk like go through life with this fragility that to say something like that i know what you're saying is kind of like shorthand for you know the maybe the bigger picture but um you know it is kind of like amazing to me how people will be so protective or defensive of you know the most minor aspects of their privilege i think i i think that well first off I feel like I've only really started hearing conversations about privilege in the past couple of years here. So I think it's a, it's a new concept to a lot of people. And I feel like there's a lot of conversation about like recognizing privilege, which is obviously, I mean, that's the first step, right? It's the first thing you got to do is understand the ways in which you are advantaged over other people. I think where people like part of the reason that people avoid recognizing it or, or even having conversations about recognizing it is because they don't know what, they don't know what the, the, what's the responsibility beyond that. Like nobody really talks, everything that, that people talk about is about recognizing your privilege. But like, if you do, like you recognize that privilege, like, what do you do with it from there? I feel like people don't talk about like, okay, well, you know, this is, this is where you're at. And you, you notice those things about now, what, like, now, what are you going to do with that to, to lessen the effects of that privilege? And I feel like that's the thing that people get nervous about. And so they're just like, no, 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 not, not going to do it. Not going there. Not going to delve into that. 
it feels like it falls in the category often of um, some, not everyone, but there are, there is a large enough group of people. And we understand this sentiment because it's the culture we came from uh, of just wanting you to say the right things and believe the right things. Um, so if you can just get someone to admit the truth about privilege, then great. But the people who haven't are the enemy and those are the ones you need to sway. And when you're saying that the, that the conversation about what the implications of that are is what's missing, it's almost, it, it kind of reminds me of the, the implications of, you know, what it meant to be Christian growing up. It's like, there's all these conversations about saying, I believe in Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and savior. Uh, and that Jesus was born of a virgin and that he died and rose and that he saved us from our sins. And we are all going to hell if we don't just admit that that's the truth. And then you look at how it informs people's lives and it doesn't do much. I feel like they're having the same problem uh, on the other, on any other side of roast conversations. Let's get you to admit the right thing. So in that sense, it's that you have privilege, but the conversation about the implications of how it's supposed to impact your life and what's required of you based on what you've admitted to as a truth is often, is often lost. Yeah. That's, I feel like there's a lot of parallels there. What do you think of that, Phil? Well, I'll preface the way that I want to respond by, by saying that I, I don't care or give special privilege to any of your listeners that follow Jesus versus any other source of wisdom or inspiration. Um, but you know, since we're talking about growing up Christian, right. Um, you know, I, I think there, there are two sort of, um, you know, classic examples, uh, from Jesus's life that come to mind. Um, and one goes back to that sort of like genealogy conversation, um, which is, you know, uh, like Jesus basically said, you, you have to be born again. And what, he's saying when he says that like in historical, you know, socio-political context is you must renounce this pride in your lineage, you know? So there's this like renunciation of privilege. You're not automatically in the in group because you think you're better than others. And, you know, your ancestors have done ABCD, therefore you're, you're the it thing. You know, there's actually this conversion experience, you know, there's this renunciation, this withdrawal from, the institution that you feel so special to be a part of. Um, but then there's also this uh, leveraging of, of, um, of privilege for um, those at the margins, those who are oppressed. Um, you know, an- another example might be, um, you know, this, this idea of like the rich man not finding his personal freedom or liberation without renouncing wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that pops up, um, in the gospels as well. Um, so, and like, you know, I don't want the conversation to go in this direction of like, what is the right thing or responsible thing to do with your privilege only? I mean, ethics are important and all that, but there's also this aspect of what liberates me. Where do I find my humanity? Is it really in, you know, uh, continuing to amass land, taking out loans, you know, uh, setting up a certain kind of life for, uh, my offspring, you know, without any critical reflection on like, who does, who does this affect? Um, Mm -hmm. and I also want to be careful of, of, you know, I'm not trying to scandalize, you know, people that are just getting by in life. 
Uh, sure, sure. You know, because it is, you know, a fraction of the 1% that really oppress all of us. But within the 99%, you know, we have to also uh, discover our humanity together. You know, that's that's the path. That's like the meaning, the quest of of the human experience is to discover your humanity, you know, your freedom, your liberation. And yeah. uh, like, I, I don't think like we really get there by living in a vacuum and saying, yes, I tick the boxes. Um, I, I mean, I guess, I guess maybe the argument is more fundamental. Like I think, you know, our freedom, our, our liberation, uh, a Christian might say being saved. Um, like, I think it happens in this life. Um, I, you know, other Christians would say, you know, whatever happens in this life, just bear it. As long as you're, you know, sort of swallowing (laughs) it well, you'll end up in the, in the correct hereafter, you know? Um, so I guess, I guess we, you know, we might not agree on that fundamental level, uh, myself and, and, and others, but, um, if you do accept that there's some kind of meaning and purpose and joy and, and freedom and liberation in this life, like, uh, it has to be bound up with the experiences of other people. Yeah. To your point about not wanting to scandalize people who are just trying to make a way for themselves in this life. Um, I'm just going to emphasize that, uh, that that's not what you're doing because that's essentially what I've done and we're friends. And I don't feel like you're doing that even when you call it, just pointing that out. But I think it is a good way to kind of move into like what you do and why you do it. Um, you, uh, we've, for the listeners, we've tried to do this call, uh, multiple times. Um, and we've had a lot of difficulty because, uh, time difference and internet connection, it, it can be a problem because we're talking to Phil from, uh, Uganda and what brings a white Southern evangelical to Uganda? Uh, cause that's not the path that everybody takes, but that's where you kind of found, uh, what's what gives you drive and purpose in this life. And, and I think that started when you were at Messiah. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, when I went to Messiah the first semester, I was like, it is so damn cold here. I need to get the hell out of central Pennsylvania. I, I don't, I don't understand. Like, you know, my parents grew up in upstate New York, you know, the coldest part, you know, parts of the continental U S and <laughs> um, you know, I was raised, you know, uh, with blizzards every now and then. And and I was always that kid. That's like, uh, I'll go outside maybe for five minutes, throw a few snowballs, and then I'm going to run back inside for my hot chocolate. You know, I never liked the cold and I was on campus. It was really windy. Uh, yeah, I was like working this like early morning campus job, you know, where I would walk the whole way across, you know, diagonally across the extreme ends of camp uh, of campus at, at 6am every morning to go and sweep. And I was just, you know, I was getting like depressed and I was like, I got to get out of here. So I went to like this, our, our study abroad office on campus. And I looked at all the pictures and I saw the equator and the equator ran right through Uganda. And I was like, <laughs> okay, that must be like a more conducive, you know, conducive climate uh, for my happiness. And um, yeah, so filled out the paperwork, uh, went to Uganda, uh, uh, my second year of university, um, and, uh, through a, you know, bizarre, or I don't know what the right word is through a series of events. In any case, I ended up here 
Um, that wasn't really the plan, but uh, life life has has led me here. And uh, so that was in 2009. So I've been here about 12 years. Wow. I think that's hilarious. I honestly thought that there was something more specific that brought you there other than just not wanting to be cold. <laughs> I mean, that was the preliminary motivation. And then, you know, I saw like some photos that students had taken. I don't, I don't know what the thing was, you know, that like sold me on it. Um, it seemed, I guess, I guess different. I guess I was looking for something different, you know, mm-hmm. than um, my campus experienced that particular semester. So you were, you were in Uganda, you end up there. Um, I know you come back here and there while you're in school, but uh, that, that while you were there, you did start kind of solidifying that that's where you would end up on a more permanent base. Um, so, and then we'll kind of get into the, the details, but because uh, you eventually worked to form Solidarity Uganda, uh, a nonprofit, and we'll hear more about that. I guess a little bit later, but um, kind of like, how did things move in that direction for you? How did you find that as a Uganda as a more permanent place? Self? Yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah, it was a combination of things. Uh, one, I stayed off campus with a family and really like appreciated that experience. Um, I think it, it really helped me find certain aspects of myself and my spirituality and my you know, sort of like preferred social arrangements and that kind of stuff. I uh, started dating someone. We eventually had two kids. The relationship didn't work out, um, but I'm, you know, my kids are are still in Uganda. I have a new relationship here. Um, uh, I'm married here, and uh, yeah, I I was also, um, you know, as I said, I was studying theology, and so. I had to do kind of like a practicum and I at the same time had kind of like started this uh, small um, youth commune kind of like in an old Episcopal church in Harrisburg. Um, and I, I think through that experience, I was just like, I, I really don't want to learn from like one of these old geezers that just like should not be leading a community. Um, at least, I mean, there are many, you know, amazing, uh, faith, faith leaders in, in Harrisburg. Um, the ones that I was in proximity to are not included in that category, um, with maybe the exception of one or two, but, you know, I was really looking for something that would challenge me. And so I did, um, an internship with, uh, the church of Uganda in Northern Uganda. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't know how much you want to go into that, but uh, I think through that, that experience was, was enlightening. Um, it, it also, you know, kind of showed me that, uh, you really don't fit here, Phil. Um, huh. this isn't for you. And if you keep going down this path, like it's going to suppress, um, your happiness and also what you have to offer. Um, what do you, so what do you mean by that? I, I, cause it sounds like, so obviously at this point in your life, you know, you you are still in school, you're looking at your like spiritual growth or your spirituality through a Christian mm-hmm. lens still. Um, mm-hmm. And when you say you're at the church of Uganda and you realize that this isn't going to work for you and a good fit, if you kind of continue on the path, is that, um, is that still with that like evangelical lens uh, that you're talking about? And that's, what's not working. What is it? 
uh, just real, I guess, kind of quickly, I guess, how, or as long as you want, don't worry about it. Uh, speak to just <laughs> what, what that means to you, like why, why it didn't feel like it might work. Oh yeah, sure. So, um, well, you know, I was, I was so open to all kinds of spiritual influence, uh, even before going to Uganda. I think, I think, you know, like leaving, leaving home and going off to university and questioning things, you know, I was, I was really ready for it. You know, I wanted something like that, um, for my own growth. And, uh, you know, I was, I was kind of like easing myself into it with, um, you know, I was, I was reading all kinds of holy books and, uh, you know, theology and sociology from different religious perspectives from around the world. You know, um, I, I think, you know, I was also, uh, gravitating, you know, more toward radical politics, which is also kind of a religion of its own sometimes. And, uh, I kind of found a bit of a, of a growing identity there. Um, and so I brought all of these influences into, um, my, you know, experience with the church of Uganda, um, and, and found that essentially what the church of Uganda is, is an extension of, uh, of colonial religion. Uh, no surprise, uh, shouldn't have been a surprise to me. Um, but I, yeah, I guess I, I guess I was still holding out at that point. I wasn't much of an evangelical, but I was at least still um, identifying as a Christian, very uh, consciously in my daily life, trying to grow as a Christian. Um, and uh, I think what, if I'm to pick a moment that sort of like settled it for me, it's, it's probably when I was invited to, um, there was a, a very wealthy um, church member where I was, where I was serving and he invited me uh, with like some of the, the bigger clergy in the diocese to attend a house opening ceremony for his new mansion. And oh, uh, all, cool. all these yeah. clerics. Yeah, yeah. First of all, it rubbed me the wrong way, but I'm like, OK, I'm here to learn, you know, like I'm I'm a, I'm a student, you know, like I'm here to learn. I'm here to, to follow along and always give benefit of doubt until I have judgments and lines that I can't cross, you know. Um, so I attended this thing and uh, I basically I, through that experience, like I realized that like, OK, if I stay on this path, the maximum possible, you know, peak will be that I become an old person. I'm still wearing this damn collar saying the same damn things, you know, year after year to appease somebody that's above me. And so that the community can look at me and clap, you know, after I've made a speech. Um, and fundamentally, you know, I was like more interested in social change and that kind of stuff. And I'm like, it just, it just won't happen here. Like the church is not a vehicle for that. Um, and that's not to say the church hasn't been a vehicle for that in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. It has. Um, but I think most, mostly by and large, that heyday is, is well past. And, um, you know, the, the institution, actually just like church in general, uh, regardless of like its level of institutionality in, in Uganda in particular, is uh, something that does entrench the status quo of which I'm, I'm very disillusioned with it. Um, so I think, you know, I, I kind of, I kind of made a decision, um, informally in that moment, but then, you know, I had to kind of like take several months to be like, was I really, you know, sober minded when, 
when I was uh, processing that. And eventually I was like, yeah, no way I'm out. I, I can't do this. <laughs> it is tough. It's like, um, I don't know. I feel like there's a common, like there's a lot of, a lot of people in all different types of situations that are, that look at that same prospect and uh, you know, you're, everybody's on a track towards something. And when your track becomes too defined, I think some people take comfort in that and other people don't because I kind of feel the same thing sometimes, you know, in my professional life is like, like I'm looking at it and I'm like, okay, well, here is the next clear iteration of what that looks like. And here's the cap. And I just don't know if that's going to work for me. Like, do I want to do that? Do I want to be in this person's shoes doing what they're doing 15 years from now. And I, I don't know that I, I, I totally resonate with that feeling that you're describing of just like, no, no, I do mm. not. That's not where I want to, I want to be two decades from now, you know? Yeah, totally. Back to the conversation of, you know, uh, privilege. Um, I mean, you know, it's, it's great if you can, say like this has no meaning or purpose for me therefore i'm going to do this other thing um just you know acknowledging that not everybody really has that choice and sometimes you know you just you play with the hand that you're dealt and um you just gotta you know survive or or make the best of it um i think in my situation like i I did grow up like you know um poorer than a lot of my neighbors. And I think, you know, having to, you know, dishwash on minimum wage for all these years and like do these scrappy jobs and like, uh, you know, try to put myself through like a fucking terribly expensive, like liberal arts, private Christian college, uh, (laughs) you know, like all that stuff, like at least give me some level of, of, you know, uh, yeah, like, like I, I did have to play with the hand that I was dealt, but uh, like, definitely, like at, at some point I was like, I got to push back as well. Um, yeah. I can't just, you know, keep following this path. Uh, you, you, you can end up living in servitude to um, the path that's laid out for you, you know? Um, and that's definitely not something that I want for anybody that I love. Um, so I don't, I don't want it for myself either. Which is, so, I mean, if you, you end up, most people who study abroad, right? Like, uh, there's a lot of people who study abroad in college. A lot of times they pick somewhere sexy like Europe or whatever, but, um, and then they, they finish their degree and they come back and they, they pepper it into conversation for the next 20 years. Uh, not to make fun of anyone who's listening. Who's but, 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 but before you go anywhere, what, what is not sexy about Uganda? I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. <laughs> but Europe I, is the first thing that came to mind about something that's sexy because people are 16 and they drink and smoke cigarettes. But yeah, from those yeah, long sticks, they put their cigarette into that long, like, Cruella, Cruella de Vil stick and they smoke. I don't know. Europe is what people think of when they think sexy places to go. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you... So the second time I heard about Cruella de Vil today for some reason. Oh, you're welcome. It must be the harvest moon. I don't know. <laughs> but you stayed. You didn't like, so you came to this awakening there that you, you didn't want to just continue on a trajectory. And 
instead of doing that back home where you could have found another way to not do that, like you, you stayed. Uh, and so what, what compelled you there? What did, what, gra- what, why did you gravitate towards Uganda in such a strong way? I, I don't know. And I don't think like it's, I mean, there is an aspect to which like, you know, you have a relationship with a place. And I think one thing that's lost is like, uh, especially for, you know, people that have in their ancestry, like white settler colonialism, uh, you know, uh, manifest destiny attitudes, you know, um, we like, you know, I'm including myself in that category, but when I say we have kind of lost this sense of place identity, unless it kind of makes us oppress, allows us to oppress others and still feel good about ourselves. Um, so, you know, I, I don't want to like completely say that, <laughs> of course, like every place is his place now, you know, you shoot a rocket dick into the sky and uh, you, you just assume that, you know, the cosmos are yours. Um, I don't know what, yeah. Anyway, we can go into that for a long time. Um, yeah, no. Uh, so, so I do, you know, feel, um, a sense of, um, of pride of like, uh, of home, of commitment, community, identity. When, when, you know, people, people talk about Uganda, that's not to say I don't feel it, you know, when they talk about Harrisburg, especially where I spent, um, spent quite a bit of time, uh, um, you know, uh, I, I didn't stay in Uganda for some years. Like I, I came back to Pennsylvania and, um, you know, I was an organizer in Harrisburg and, uh, you know, I was a student and did all these kind of like blue collar jobs and all that kind of stuff. Um, and at some point I was just like, you know, this isn't the life for me. Like, am I just going to keep hustling, like working my way up the nonprofit, you know, it's, it's not even a ladder. Like there's really no nowhere to climb you know it's um you're just kind of like in this uh yeah do-gooder kind of economy or whatever and doesn't really make that much of an impact and you know I think um having the politics that I had I I was very eager to to know that I could make a difference and um at that point in my life like and definitely like I'm, I'm committed also to uh to, to making a, a difference, you know, in social change and political struggle in, in my home state as well. Recently, um, we had a kind of an action where we interrupted in, in Harrisburg uh, this meeting by by Republicans and some some of their Democrat friends. Um, it was a it was a little meeting about um, in in the in the state house about um, why pipelines are have. Uh, both economic and environmental benefits, you know, it's just like a bullshit event. So, you know, I'm still, I'm still like, you know, engaged in, in these things as well, uh, even when I'm physically removed. Um, but I, I, uh, I think I, I felt like it was, to be honest, it was like a bit of an opportunistic choice, you know, um, uh, like I felt like I, I, I had, you know, comrades and friends, um, we were deeply engaged in, you know, a political struggle against Uganda's dictator. So, you know, I didn't want to just kind of like give up on that. You know, I felt like I had a role to play, you know, I could, I could, um, offer solidarity and support in different ways that like I was trying really hard to offer in, in, in central Pennsylvania as well. And I just couldn't, I felt like I wasn't getting a foothold and, um, 
Yeah. So I, I don't know. I, ca- I can't necessarily point to one thing. I guess I'm trying to work it out as I, as I talk here, but um, yeah, I, I did um, uh, with a few other folks, um, uh, five, five Ugandans and then a, and then a fellow American, uh, we started Solidarity Uganda to kind of like um, uh, organize with uh, different rural communities, especially in Uganda to, to resist uh, the, the military dictatorship and the, you know, the multinationals and private uh, companies uh, from outside of Africa that continue to, to, to make people's lives really difficult and, 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 uh, and frustrating. Um, so we started this organization some years back and, and, uh, work-wise that was kind of like, you know, what I was like wrapped up in, um, uh, for quite a number of years. And I'm still, uh, I'm not, I'm not directly involved anymore, but, um, you know, I'm adjacent to a few of their, of their undertakings and, and, uh, it's really, you know, become a, um, an amazing, very diverse, you know, group of, of, uh, of East Africans that are fighting for their, for their liberation. What's, who's the, uh, the dictator that you were talking about? And like, can you tell us a little bit about like what type of government you were opposing and what you guys were doing to do that? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, where it's, it's always hard to know where to begin, you know, because I almost don't want to start with this dictator, even though he's been in power for coming to four decades, um, you know, uh, yeah, it's, it's been, you know, it's been, uh, almost four decades. Um, you know, uh, basically like the, the colonial government, uh, from, from the UK came to, um, came to Uganda and, uh, around 1900, uh, was when a lot of the colonial efforts were really systematizing. And, um, you know, Uganda, Uganda is, is essentially a land grab, uh, there was nothing called Uganda before the, you know, the, before Europe came in and divided up Africa, you know, there were different nations and um, kingdoms essentially. And so like the um, colonization grouped all of these groups under something fictitious called Uganda. And I don't know if I'm doing this narrative justice, cause I'm probably not the, the one to really tell the history, but um Essentially, uh, what happened was that uh, one of those kingdoms uh, was used to, not only one, but one especially, was used to colonize and, and, and co-opt uh, other kingdoms and nations from across these lands. And eventually, like these, this partnership between uh, the colonial occupation and, um, and some of these uh, kingdoms that they were more friendly with, um, uh, basically resulted in, you know, this, this, this sort of emerging government that was eventually handed over to those that had been friendly to, uh, the British. So, um, you know, there, there are many, uh, African, uh, nations countries, nations, kingdoms that, you know, really struggled and resisted to get their independence. Um, that, that did happen. Yes. in some parts of Uganda, um, but maybe not to the same kind of like systematic scale as, as, uh, as elsewhere in, in some parts of Africa. Um, so, you know, you have this sort of hegemony whereby uh, the rulers that were kind of like left in power um, 
now also had uh, economic ties, social ties, et cetera, to uh, the former colonial government. Um, and, and up till today, still have those ties uh, in the form of, you know, financial policies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't want to kind of like bore listeners with all that. Um, so they basically but, like they divided it up by lines on a map that didn't take into account the different groups of people living in that area and then co-opted that's right. one of the, one or several of the groups there and and through them subjugated the rest sort of set up a puppet government with like these people who they've used to that end in charge of things and even now that they're colonial ties are dissolved so you know in in some ways the the echoes of that are still there i mean and these these people who are descendants of the ones that you know had kind of took the reins from the british government still have ties to you know institutions and things in the uk that allow them to to continue to stay on top is that is that oversimplifying well yeah but also i'm oversimplifying um and we are you know uh, a few like ignorant white dudes, um, you know, trying to construct a somewhat <laughs> fair assessment of what happened <laughs> within a short period of time. Um, but, uh, you know, there were these different uh, uh, regimes that uh, that that ruled um, that ruled politically in Uganda in the from 62 onward. And um Basically, like uh, the person who is currently in power, Yoweri Museveni, um, you know, went armed to the bush and, you know, got this popular support, you know, from the people uh, because he said African leaders stay too long in power. Um, and, you know, there are sort of like these historical, you can look it up on YouTube and the like, these kind of like speeches that he gave and all this kind of stuff, being young and charismatic and ready to kind of like fight in this democratic revolution and this kind of stuff. So... Uh, turns out what he did was like kill a shitload of people. Um, Classic. You know, many, 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 many. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and also very much learned and taught from, you know, colonial uh, way, you know, from imperialism, you know, from the global North's imperialism. Um, so, you know, he, he killed a bunch of people, got into power, um, you know, that was in the mid eighties and now he's still in power having said African leaders stay too long in power. Um, so, you know, it's just, it, it, things have regressed. He was also a, a student of, um, you know, political science, basically. And this was the late 80s. So a lot of the neoliberal economic policies were really coming around globally. And although he kind of had this sort of communist rhetoric when he was rising to power, like he he saw that it was more opportunistic to um, you know, basically privatize everything that could be privatized and, um, you know, bring in a lot of private business to, uh, to do the things that the state should be doing or that the state had done in the past. Um, and, you know, slowly, uh, years, you know, year by year, society started to crumble. He, he crushed down, you know, trade unions, cooperatives, um, you know, just basically made, made life hard for farmers, for, uh, workers, for students, for women, you know, and, um, you know, progressively over the years, things have just gotten quite bad. Some things have improved, uh, no credit to him, but some things have improved. Others have really regressed. 
Um, and essentially what uh, it has devolved into is a military dictatorship. Why do I say that? Uh, because any dissent is suppressed, even very modest dissent. You know, if you go and take like a, a placard or a sign and go out to the road uh, and, you know, tape your mouth, it's a silent protest or something, you will be uh, thrown in jail. You will be subjected to kangaroo courts, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it, it's been rough. You know, he's kind of acted as um, as sort of like a military uh, wing for the Western powers, uh, especially the U.S. Um, you know, so if the U.S. has a military mission in Africa, it might contract uh, the the military, the the Ugandan military, the UPDF, uh, or uh, private, you know, sort of like contractor fighters uh, from from Uganda. Um, so it's essentially an, an informal trade, you know, um, since a lot of your, your listeners are probably from the States, like, uh, it's worth saying that, you know, th th there is basically an informal, informal, uh, arrangement between the government of the U S and the government of Uganda, where, um, as long as Museveni's, uh, military does the dirty work, then, um, you know, foreign aid, et cetera, can come flowing in. He can embezzle, you know, the U.S. will turn a, a blind eye to widespread corruption. Um, there was a there was a riot against uh, Museveni and and in um, in favor of one of the kingdom's kings in uh, 2011, 2011, 2010, 2011. I'm not remembering the right year, um, which uh, it was it was basically like the week after I first came to Uganda and in the town where I was uh, attending school, um, there were these riots. And, and uh, after those riots, uh, the, um, you know, the, the European and North American powers get together and uh, they discuss, OK, we want stability. Therefore, let's invest in crowd control. Let's invest in anti-riot gear. Let's invest in tear gas. Let's uh, let's, uh, you know, um, support the Uganda uh, government in torture interrogation methods. Um, you know, so the, the past decade has basically been these investments in stabilizing the dictatorship in Uganda. Uh, this mm. is not new, of course, for like U.S. foreign policy. It's kind of like the norm. Yeah. There are, you know, good and bad dictators, quote unquote, yeah. um, for, for, you know, the deep state, the U.S. deep state. Um, but you know, it had really, really entrenched, uh, Museveni's rule over the past, the past few years. And, um, you know, people, people have been resisting him. Um, uh, there have been some victories against, uh, the, the, the oppression, uh, some very big victories even. Um, but, uh, you know, he's still in power and, uh, and the pandemic has helped him out a lot. What yeah. is, what is like resistance? To, because you mentioned that a couple of times, like, you know, you you were involved in resistance against the regime or whatever. What does that look like? Like, what if if protesting and stuff is so closely controlled? Like, what can you do? Yeah, that's that. You're you're asking a question or pointing out a problem that I've tried to really, um, uh, you know, put my life into, um, and also sort of, you know tangential to that, uh, try to make a living out of, you know, answer, answering that question with folks. Um, so, uh, a lot, a lot can be done. I mean, there, are, there are two, 
there are really three kind of like key ingredients for successful resistance and just kind of be nerdy for a second. Uh, yeah, one, definitely. take it away. I want to hear your nerdiness <laughs> on this. <laughs> one is a uh, unity across diversity. So, um, you know, are you finding groups, communities, people, individuals, uh, institutions that share a common goal with you? Are you uniting with them? Are you building those relationships? Are you working together? Uh, are you building your numbers, you know, um, across people that are affected by the same enemy, essentially. Um, the second thing is strategic planning. So, you know, if, if, uh, if you remember, um, when Mubarak fell in Egypt, like the, the kind of mainstream media narrative was like, oh, this whole thing happened in a few weeks, you know, who would have thought that Tahrir Square would bring down, you know, this, this, uh, this, uh, this dictator. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you actually, you know, do, do, do more research, you'll find that there was tons and tons of like organizing happening on the ground, people having all those boring meetings, people planning together, waiting for that serendipitous moment, you know, uh, ready to kind of like pull the trigger, um, when, when the opportunities arise, etc. Um, so there's the, the unity amidst diversity, there's this, there's the strategic planning and then there's. What, and this is a debated one, but they call it nonviolent discipline. I call it nonviolent strategy. Um, although like uh, historically, like violence sometimes can like help a resistance struggle. Um, but generally where movements are nonviolent, they attract broader participation. You know, um, persons mm-hmm. with disabilities participate, children participate, elders, women, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas if you have a strictly violent you know, guerrilla uprising of sorts, it's usually young, able-bodied men that, you know, go to the struggle and it's often not a critical enough mass and it's often fought uh, or, or suppressed with the same tools that they try to use, but it, uh, the opponent has a greater quantity and more skill with those tools, you know, uh, with, mm. with weapons, with, you know, military strategy and training, um, you know, the U.S. Uh, trains um, some of the dictators' henchmen uh, I, I lived in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which has a, uh, the U S army war college, which has trained, you know, Ugandan military leaders. Uh, there is WinSec in, in Georgia, um, that has trained oh, all no kinds way. of, you know, dictators around the world, their, their military people. So, um, you know, if, you, if you're going up against the big guns, like you, you just, you have to have a strategy, you know? Um, and, and that strategy is really hard to build and it's not just, you know, created front loaded out of a vacuum, you know, we created the strategy, now we apply it, you know, it's always evolving because of how, how much the terrain is shifting, you know, there are always arrests, there are always, there's always suppression, you know, there's always propaganda, there, there's all kinds of factors that are flying around in, in real time, you know, and it's really hard um, to be kind of like a grassroots network that has the discipline, coordination, communication, you know, to be able to, um, you know, get on the front foot um, against, you know, a a dictatorship that's backed by a tax system, that's backed by uh, foreign superpowers, you know, that's backed by a military and has all kinds of (laughs) sanctions and laws, you know. So it it is uh, like I'm being pretty geeky here, but it is, uh, you know, this kind of stuff has to be approached with the same um, tenacity and seriousness as 
somebody who goes to that U.S. Army war college for I don't know how many years and studies war, you know, studies how to kill people, how to suppress dissent, how to control messaging and propaganda, you know. Um, so usually uh, when this network that I'm a part of like has a training, um, I haven't been to, to many of these trainings for quite some time. Um, but uh, like, uh, I, I remember we had some, some comrades that we were training in, in one of the countries that neighbors Uganda. And um, I don't want to say too much on a podcast, but um, basically like, <laughs> they were they were like you know in the middle of a session a work kind of like a workshop session and you know there was all this kind of like banter in the room and like uh you know things were kind of getting out of control and somebody was just like look do you think it's okay for somebody who uh is in the military to show up a minute late and then to talk uh on different subjects during this period of time you know so if we don't have the same discipline and strategy then we're going to lose and i i do think like i i mean i know that that's kind of like uh, yeah that's i mean they're just saying that to to prove a point you know uh to get mm -hmm. people to kind of come back to order and work together and all that um but you know there is some a grain of truth to this to this idea that like you can't just jump into a very hostile, repressive environment um, that is shifting so much all the time and just kind of like expect to win because you do nonviolence or because you have many people. Um, you know, there are so many factors that, um, that are always kind of at play. And so um, that's, that's what I want to, you know, that, that's what I, that's what gets me going, you know, like I really get excited about, um, you know, contributing my life toward understanding that better and toward being in solidarity with people that are already waging their own struggles, you know? Um, and, yeah. you know, uh, this gets back to the whole, like, uh, 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 liberating ourselves from our privilege as well. Like, um, you know, I want to learn from these groups and I have that beautiful opportunity to do so. Um, and, and a sort of like unique privilege, uh, in terms of the relationships that I have to, you know, share uh, with people, you know, well, what did they really try in Sudan to get al-Bashir out of power? And how might that work for us here? Or maybe it doesn't, you know, like, I, I like, it's, it's, um, to me, that's, that's like an enormous privilege to be able to kind of like learn from those experiences. So, so what were some of the things that were going on when you were, like, when you were, with Solidarity Uganda, and you're trying to resist the government oppression, <clears throat> excuse me, what were some of, what was the government doing that you were able to respond to? What were the types of things that you were responding to in the community that you were part of in the community that you were trying to help uh, along with other Ugandans mobilize? Yeah, so a number of things. Um, trying to think, I mean, there are just so many uh, of, you know, successful and failed attempts at, at, at uh, undermining um, uh, yeah, the dictatorship. Sure. You can speak and, and to it generally too. Private sector I mean, I allies. Yeah, no, no, no. Um, well, uh, there, I mean, one, one thing that is just running rampant in Uganda and many parts of the world is land grabbing by either the state or by really like wealthy private sector investors or multinational companies. 
uh, whether it's for resources, you know, like mining or oil or, or even land to um, cultivate or, you know, for kind of like development, you know, like, uh, like developing like hotels or, you know, urban development of some kind. Um, there's this theft of, of land um, that is really running rampant in Uganda and other places. And this is something that um, we noticed very early on uh, motivates people to struggle. Um, and we decided that we don't want to fight for people. We want to fight with them. So we don't want to convince communities to engage in resistance. You know, uh, that's their decision. But if they have decided that and there's something that we could offer uh, and something that we could learn from there, then potentially these could be good partners. So we started our kind of journey um, in a district called Amuru, uh, which had been subjected to lots of like uh, what they call large scale land grabbing, you know, like imagine 100,000 acres of land, like the size of maybe one of the counties, one of the smaller counties in, in my home state. Um, you know, uh, an investor comes, a single investor comes and says, this land is mine. And yet thousands of families live there oh. and rely on it. You know, you're talking about an agrarian society. They rely on it and it's part of their identity, you know, for hundreds of years, generation after generation, ancestors have done everything that's meaningful in that place, you know, um, and they're buried there with you, you know, so, uh, your community not only sort of relies on it economically, but it's a part of who they are. And so uh, some some investors uh, wanted uh, such a large swath of land in this particular district. And, you know, the, the military had been sent to uh, forcefully evict people, which they had done on several occasions. Um, some sort of like community vigilante groups were armed and uh, committed arsons, uh, on behalf of, you know, the, the investors and politicians that were trying to take over this land. Um, so we worked with this community um, that had already engaged in, you know, direct action, like very serious resistance. They had, they had already um, uh, done so many, you know, defiant uh, actions uh, against, against the dictator and, and his allies. Um, so we worked with this group to build up, you know, community organizing structures and, um, you know, resistance training kind of uh, um, programs and, um, and develop some tactics that could be used to thwart uh, uh, the militarism and, and violence and, and, and injustices that uh, basically catalyze this land grab. Um, one of the actions that they, I mean, this, this is, these are protracted struggles often. This one mm -hmm. has been uh, many, many years, even before we were kind of involved at all. Um, but in a, a few years ago, they um, had over 300 women, men, and children that went to occupy a, a United Nations office, basically calling upon the UN to engage the government in dialogue, very modest request uh, to stop the, the land grabbing and the, and the violence associated with it. Um, and this did at least temporarily, uh, make like the arsons and forced evictions subside. Uh, the story is not finished being told. Uh, but some of these kind of things like, you know, really put us on the map within East Africa. And so we get a lot of, and other parts of Africa as well. 
So um, we get a lot of requests, you know, uh, communities will say, hey, we've been trying ABCD. It hasn't really worked. We want to get to know you and build, you know, build our power together. Uh, will you come in and uh, be with us okay. in our struggle? Yeah. So that's kind of like, I think, you know, that at this point, like the requests are coming in the door for that kind of thing. And it's more like the only, the only thing we can really do capacity wise um, is to say like, have you already tried ABCD? Like if you haven't tried that, there's not much we can help with yet. Uh, so uh, the, the group that I'm, that I was a part of and, and still am in some ways, like, uh, you know, really wants to see that there's some resistance that has been tried. And if it has, then, you know, that's a community that we want to be uh, in solidarity with. So basically, like, you've got limited resources, you have a lot of requests coming in, you are looking for, for a commitment level from the people who are, who are asking for help. Like, hey, have you done some of these basic steps first? And if if so, then this then we're the logical next step, and and we'll put put some pressure. What's the uh, is there like like is there a threat of this stuff spilling over into violence like on a regular basis, or is that something that's just? I mean, if, I feel like we've seen that happen from afar in a lot of different countries over the years, and it it's like you push people to a certain point naturally you're going to start to see, you know, violent outbursts and stuff. Is that something that you guys have to combat or is that not a factor in the areas that you're working in? People will fight with the tools that they have. Um, and because violence is, uh, I mean, I want to be careful how I say this, like violence isn't the only thing that's taught, um, but it is one of the things that's often taught. And so people will try to sometimes use violence. Um, I think where Solidarity Uganda um, comes in on that is to discuss strategy. Um, you know, not, not so much like ethics or morality per se, uh, which is for a community to decide, uh, but strategy. And, you know, if you, like, for example, one community had uh, fought with, um, you know, they had, they had, they had used stones, essentially stones and spears and the state has tear gas, AK 47s, vehicles, you know, all kinds of stuff and, and, uh, nearly unlimited supply. Um, so it's, it's not to say that you could never win in that situation, but it's going to be a heavy lift, you know? Um, yeah, for sure. it's harder to suppress nonviolent resistance in some ways. Uh, not always, uh, there's also really ineffective, uncreative, unstrategic, nonviolent action that is done all over the world, uh, where you guys come from, where, where I live, you know, everywhere. Um, and occasionally, uh, some people can devise like a pretty strategic approach. Um, and so that's where, uh, Solidarity Uganda would try to, you know, ally with communities is to, is to, uh, build capacity around those stra that strategizing the ability to organize, uh, using, uh, tactics that, uh, that will get you the power, the kind of power that you want, um, instead of, um, pushing you backwards, you know, um, mm. vi violence doesn't always push you backwards, but it often does when you're against these uh, powerful opponents. So much of the, like when you're ultimate, like ultimate goal, it sounds like is to depose this dictatorship, um, you know, and probably 
I would imagine you want to reorganize the government to some extent so that this situation doesn't occur again right after this guy leaves power, you know, uh, how much of that is dependent upon you know, getting the international community to pay attention to what's going on there. And, uh, I guess, I, I don't know. It seems like such a big, a big undertaking. It's like, it's hard to wrap. It's hard to wrap my head around like how that could take place and what would be required to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine says that the cost of a no is, is a yes. Uh, so in other words, like everything that you're resisting, you have to provide an alternative or at least somebody has to. Um, and I, I do get very disillusioned in our kind of like formal opposition uh, partisan politics within Uganda, also within the US. Uh, I'm not particularly stoked about the Democratic Party. Um, uh, you know, count me out for any party of the right altogether. Um, the Democratic Party is basically center-right in my kind of view of things. Um, and I get I get frustrated in, in Uganda with uh, the opposition because it repeats its own mistakes a lot, uh, season after season. There's a lot of uh, personality cults, you know, misogyny. Uh, you know, they're, they're really kind of like these internal things that keep paralyzing them. And if you look in, in the research about, uh, if, if you dig up research about uh, civil resistance, uh, nonviolent resistance, uh, nonviolent revolutions, um, you will often, uh, you know, find that the factors that determine whether or not a movement wins uh, have very uh, little to do with context or contextual factors like the level of repression, how much money the movement has, that kind of stuff, and have a lot to do with um, how is that movement uh, building its power? Uh, those three things that I mentioned, does it have a nonviolent strategy? Does it, does, it, um, does it do strategic planning and then implement that plan? Does it build unity amidst diversity and get these diverse constituencies to, to take action in some way? Um, you know, those are, those are internal factors that even in some of the most repressive environments, groups usually have control over those, or at least some level of control over those. Um, so uh, I, I, um, maybe that's, I mean, that's based on research, but then I think for, for me personally, like, I, even if that wasn't the case, I would prefer to remain willfully naive so that I could still have hope. You, one of the things that you mentioned was, um, you know, with this kind of work, you do build a name for yourself in a way that, or Solidary Uganda builds a name for itself as a community organizing group. And you get people reaching out to you. I imagine that also, you know, it puts you on the map a little bit with, um, you know, the government or the militias, government militia. I don't know if militia is the right word, but like the military. Um, it sounds like from my understanding that some of them kind of operate like kind of mob-ish in that, yeah, they all take orders from the government, but they kind of operate within an area and kind of do their thing and might break the quote unquote rules. Um, but you must have, you know, you did, if, if, if the community knows who Solidarity Uganda is and they're reaching out uh, and strategy, then I then I assume that made some enemies too. And I know that you personally had, that you personally know plenty of people who've had faced repercussions for that. Uh, and I'd, I'd love for you to kind of share some of that part of your story too. I feel like we're 
going to be, I don't know, this is going to be a little bit longer than our usual conversations. And I feel like we're just scratching the surface here, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I want you to kind of get into what that looked like and what, what, what making that, sure. name, what solidarity got to making its name for itself did and, and what type of repercussions ha- happened as a result of it. Yeah, yeah. So I haven't worked with Solidarity Uganda just just for a disclaimer since yep. since uh, 2019. Um, uh, you know, I still have plenty of comrades and friends and and fellow organizers and and co-trainers and you know people people that I've uh, worked with you know within that uh, family. Not all of them would say, you know, we're fighting the dictator. <laughs> uh, I, I know a few of them definitely would. And others would say, you know, we're resisting <laughs> land grabs. We're resisting patriarchy. We're resisting ABCD uh, and trying okay. to build up a world that's more based on X, you know? Sure, um, sure. That makes sense. So, uh, I mean, we, so I, I want to, I, I don't know if I'm clever enough, but I would love to find a way to like bring this back to the discussion of Christianity. And if that comes up, like, please, you know, kind of nudge me in that direction because, um, in my own experience with, um, uh, with this, this, uh, this work, um, it, it did kind of, I mean, I was already sort of on the path, but it, it resulted, you know, in a crisis of faith eventually. I think when yeah. you go through trauma, I mean, like psychologists will tell you when you go through trauma, there's often, there's often a crisis of faith. Um, and so, you know, it's also maybe a little bit of a trigger warning. Like I, I, I will be happy to talk about my, my traumas, um, at least, at least with some level of transparency. Um, I'm already trying to maybe beat around the bush on a few things because, uh, haven't, you know, uh, talked with, the comrades about what I'm going to be sharing with you guys and who might listen to this podcast, uh, and that kind of stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. but I can share one experience from, from 2014. So, um, we, a group in Northern Uganda of youth and women had convened to basically discuss strategies for weeding out the corruption in the health sector within, uh, within one of the towns called Lira. And uh, during that um, during that training, uh, five of us were arrested. Um, I won't kind of like share the whole story. We were detained for for six days, on, um, which is which is longer than the legal amount of, of days in Uganda. Um, and mm-hmm. you know, transferred to you know torture facilities and this kind of stuff. And um, you know, I I think at that point in my faith, um, I, and even in detention, you know, like I had very vivid and even kind of like prophetic uh, dreams um, and visions. And I, I felt very guided and very grounded in what I knew as the truth, you know? And um, yeah, like, you know, when I would be called in for interrogations or something, like I had this like inner peace or calm uh, that I feel was rooted in what I believed about um, not just nonviolent strategy, but more of like like uh, like uh, the Gandhian soul force, you know, like this this sort of like uh, stubborn idea that like the most powerful thing is is soul or is love or um, you know whatever this 
truth is that is transcendent, you know? So I and felt really truth, grounded. I, sorry, I just want to jump in and mm-hmm. kind of define the truth a little bit that you're talking about uh, in, in regards to a faith shift and things like that. That truth mm. had, it had moved from like, a, you know, as our, our evangelical upbringing would, would consider the highest honor in some sense would be being persecuted for the gospel, which there are plenty of Christians involved in nonviolent work across the world um, and who have been throughout history. And you can even, I mean, I guess the first one that jumps to mind would be juniors who have that faith component to their non-resistance. But like, when you think of things like that, like, were you at that point, was that truth wrapped up in a Christian narrative still, or is that the point in which um, or around that time that that truth had started to diverge from a Christian narrative? Hmm. That's a good question. And I mean, uh, hearing your guys's questions, like kind of makes all of my theology nerd, you know, like antennas go up uh, and (laughs) and I just want to kind of like go down so many different rabbit trails. Um, I mean, at that point, um, I I had pretty well deconstructed evangelicalism um, and and Mm -hmm. uh, at least some forms of American Christianity, including kind of like mainline you know, uh, Protestantism, uh, because I was comparing that to my experience in the church of Uganda, where I was still a member at that time. So, um, I think, yes, like it, 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 it did give like a preferential treatment to like Christian truth, you know, uh, maybe without going into much detail, like my worldview definitely, uh, centered or my, my perception of truth centered Jesus at that point. Yeah. Um, although I think my, my Jesus looked different than basically, you know, 99% of the people that I knew. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was, it was sort of like stubbornly Christian, but, but I had a bone to pick with Christians more than I did with, um, non-Christians. Sure. Um, that resonates with me the, a lot. I, I see. I, I think you mm. shifted from there at that point, but that's still a sentiment that I feel strongly. So I hear what you're saying. Yeah. And the, and the, you know, the more I grow up, the more I kind of realize like, okay, like I really don't care that much. I mean, I, like it is frustrating the hypocrisy and, and, uh, Christianity. Um, it's also just like human institutions and hypocrisy. Um, so I, I'm not so, you know, like pissed off that, Oh, you're a Christian and you're a hypocrite. Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe there's like a unique, you know, kind of Christian hypocrisy compared to other hypocrisies, but you know, that, that stuff doesn't bother me. I don't want anybody to be like, I'm not advocating that somebody embraces my Jesus over theirs, uh, at this point in my life. Um, but at that point I was, uh, pretty zealous about that. Um, even in, in, uh, under interrogation at one point, um, there was a, um, yeah, basically an officer going on and on and on, um, about, uh, yeah, just how I'm a bad person and all this kind of stuff. And I pulled out all kinds of like Christian stuff. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't know it, 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 and it, I can't deny that it felt like it came to me in this very transcendent way, you know? Um, but you know, a few weeks after our release and, and, you know, we had a court case that we got basically harassed with for years after that, before it was finally dismissed. Um, and you know, thousands of dollars of things taken from us, uh, people following us in public, et cetera, wiretapping all that shit. So, uh, but a few weeks after our release, um, 
you know, my, my passport had been confiscated and stuff. And, and I'm like, you know, uh, I don't want to share this whole story with you because it might be incriminating to myself. Um, <laughs> but I'll, I'll just say that like, um, playing the Christian card, um, you know, wearing the right t-shirt or whatever has really helped me, you know, in my, in my journey. Sure, um, so <laughs> I started to sort of like, because Uganda is a very, very Christian society. It's, it's a, by far the majority of, of the population is Christian. I mean, Christianity in the global South is more on the rise, whereas in the North it's in, on the decline. Um, and, you know, Africa in particular uh, is, is quite Christian. If you're not Christian, you're usually still theistic. You're like a Muslim or something. Um, you know, there are a few, uh, there's Catholics, uh, Protestants, which are basically Anglicans and uh, uh, Pentecostals. Um, those are kind of like the three, you know, th- th- those three populations are, are the majority of Christians within okay. Uganda. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, it's a very Christian society. Our neighbors uh, sing Christian songs when we have non-religious meetings, like to get together or a birthday party or whatever. Um, and to some extent, I think if you, uh, well, maybe if you're listening as a leftist and you've adopted historical materialism, you just, you know, you, you can flex this muscle of like just embracing the thing around you, you know, acknowledging that people have their lived experiences and, uh, it's it's an act of love often to be a part of those. Um, it can be an act of love to challenge those things as well. But, um, you know, it, it, like I, at some point after being released, I was like, I got it. This is ridiculous. Like I'm, I'm in this perpetual balancing act. Like the church is in bed with the regime. I'm against the regime and I'm still in the church. Like this, like so, something doesn't compute here and it's going to be way more difficult to like, continue to do that balancing act. I don't get anything from the church in terms of support in this. In fact, I get people dissuading me from participating in in what is good and right and just. Um, So at some point I'm like, huh, okay, maybe I should just like use it opportunistically, you know, like if I need something from someone and I know that the Christian card can help me, I'm going to play it, you know, I'm going to uh, use the Jedi mind trick, you know, like I'm just going to be whoever I want to be at, at any particular moment. Um, mm-hmm. shape-shifting kind of, you know, uh, I, I took on this kind of shape-shifting worldview when it came to, um, when it came to kind of like maneuvering and, you know, uh, getting the results that I wanted. Um, not to say that I was ever dishonest. I won't admit that publicly on a podcast, but, um, <laughs> you know, it, 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 I definitely had this new kind of spirituality, which was weird because you think of religion as serving the thing that you believe in, the truth, the love, the God, et cetera, that you believe in. Um, and and now I was starting to think like, oh, maybe it can serve me, you know? Um, sure. And, you know, I justify that in my own ethics as like, okay, I'm trying to serve the greater good here, uh, my community, not only myself. Um, and, and those kind of questions led me to a lot of like eco-feminist, uh, writing, um, and, and black feminist, uh, writers. Um, and I think, you know, once I got into them, I was, I was like, okay, now I've found like that thing that really resonates with my heart. Um, I'm going to make choices in my life that are in accordance with this. Mm -hmm. I still, you know, sometimes I miss, I miss like the kind of rigid dogma, 
you know, of my, of my upbringing, like these are the right answers. Uh, it creates a kind of comfort and clarity. Um, yeah. but I oh, just, yeah. you know, it's not true. Uh, yeah. I haven't found it to be true. Um, it, and I also think that rationally it's not true. It, it sounds like what you're saying is that, and you can, I mean, correct where you need to, but what I'm hearing, I guess that, uh, like whatever, what you've come to terms with as the truth, um, it might be represented in various ways through various truths. And you've seen, you've seen aspects of that truth in Christianity and you've seen untruth in Christianity. You've whatever, maybe through just organization and action, you've found that same truth uh, through the outcomes that you believe in. Uh, you've found people who are participating in what you consider to be the truth. So when you're in an environment in which you can use the language that one you're familiar with to the culture is in, completely embedded with um that that explaining that truth and working and and unifying people around it can be done through it can be done authentically through uh, a language that's familiar to the people and that language happens to be mm. does that sound right am i on am i following you um i don't want to say no or yes but i i want to <laughs> okay I want to, I don't, I, I mean, I, okay. I think what I'm getting at here is that I am okay with the not knowing. Yep. And there are some, there are some things that I think I do know and that many humans have the experience and access to know that we should latch onto. Um, I don't think like all particularities or all religions are, you know, equal or, um, mm. sort of like equivalent or interchangeable. Um, and, you know, therefore, uh, you know, we can sort of just like replace the language across the board, you know, uh, to okay. get to the same kind of, uh, destination. Um, maybe there is some truth in that, but, um, you know, I, I just don't want to kind of like accept that too easily and oversimplify it. Um, yeah, that's, I think that's how I would respond to that. Okay. So I feel like we should get to, I mean, I, I know you said you left Solidarity Uganda in 2019. I don't want to miss out on what you kind of got going on now. Um, and I think it's worth spending a few more minutes on, on that. So after, you know, what was your reason for, and I know you said you're still, you know, you're not disconnected from it completely. And then you have a lot of camaraderie mm -hmm. and people who are part of it and that you still are in those types of conversations. But um, what led to your, um, to your leaving it in an official capacity? And, and then what did that lead you to? Um, well, what led me to leaving it was that I had, um, well, I guess by then, you know, a, a new relationship, like I had been in a relationship with someone for a few years and, um, you know, it was starting to starting to continuing. <laughs> this work was continuing to affect my mental health in a very negative way. Um, and I also felt like I had made a contribution that I could walk away from and it wouldn't just collapse. You know, um, okay. I had, I'd been pretty, uh, pretty, um, foundational in like building up an organization that could sustain itself, um, uh, in terms of the organizational culture and mission and goals and strategy and finances, et cetera. And at a certain point, um, like I knew that 
handing that off was the, definitely the right thing to do. Um, and, uh, you know, with those kind of things, you don't, uh, you don't want to like linger around too long. You know, you want to give power to people that, um, have the ability, maybe even more than myself to carry things forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and they really have done so in the past few years. Um, so I was in this new relationship and I just knew that like that thing that lives inside me, that's really me. I wasn't going to be able to find it, um, in, in that work context anymore. Like, I think I kind of found it and then I peaked and I was kind of like ready for the next challenge, um, and ready to also take care of myself. Um, so I decided to, uh, I'd already done a little bit of like freelance writing, freelance consulting, freelance, like movement, teaching, training, that kind of stuff. Um, so I decided to kind of like just do that, like just pick up random side gigs um, to, uh, you know, to uh, support um, support our family um, and also, you know, continue to do something that I liked, but without the sort of like intimate, you know, personal uh, attachment, um, mm-hmm. you know, something that I could walk away from at the end of the day and, uh, um, you know, uh, when people are arrested, like I'm confident that there are systems that have been put in place. And, you know, when there are these sort of like political crises and that kind of thing, like uh, I wouldn't be anxious or worried and, you know, up at night and that kind of thing. So at some point, you know, I did it as a healthy decision for myself. Um, I picked up, uh, yeah, maybe if you want to include any of these links in the show notes, like I've, I've done quite a bit of work with uh, a group called Beautiful Trouble uh, that does similar kinds of like movement support, but on a global scale and with some fun, exciting, pranky kind of tools. Uh, yeah, I've I've supported various kind of coalitions and and trade unions. Um, and I, have decided to do these things like on a sliding scale, you know, so if it's, if it's in my home community, like there are many things that I'll do for free. Um, you know, if it's for like a big, you know, like Amnesty International or, or, you know, one of these huge organizations, like I'll, I'll charge something for it uh, on the heavier side. And if it's a smaller client, maybe something in between, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's basically how I've been uh, sustaining myself. But what I really want to do is make enough money to kind of like uh, say, okay, basic expenses, like uh, work, work, work hours as I know it, let's put them aside for like two years and, um, and support my partner's film. She's got this excellent film um, about, a very fascinating subject called Dr. Stella Nyanzi, who is this, um, well, she's many things. She's a former political prisoner. She's a, a vulgar poet. Um, she's a, she's an academic, like a feminist academic. Um, she studies, uh, health and sexuality and African sexualities. And, uh, she's been one of the most fierce, um, people in Uganda standing against the dictatorship. So, my partner is working on a, on a film about uh, cool. Stella Nyanzi. I imagine uh, that type of thing is met with uh, controversy. I mean, there's a level of controversy around what it sounds like you're describing this as maybe even in the States when it comes to vulgarity. Uh, mm-hmm. But it sounds like that's a very particular tool uh, to be used uh, in Uganda. Is that something that's true, untrue? Yeah. So, I mean, you can, you can, if you, if you look, up anything about uh <laughs> now I'm making a pitch for Stella Nyanzi on your podcast 
Um, <laughs> if you look up anything about Stellanyansi and rudeness, you'll find all kinds of like academic treatises. You'll find, uh, you know, her poems, uh, one of which, you know, like landed her in prison because she posted a poem on Facebook. So she was in prison for two years. Um, wow. Uh, but there is like a unique uh, Ugandan-ness or... Uh, uh, Chiganda, I don't know what the correct word is, uh, Nis for, uh, the way that she uses vulgarity and rudeness and nudity and this kind of stuff, uh, to, uh, challenge the dictator's power, um, to even, you know, uh, uh, affect the dictator in a, in a, in a negative way to attack the dictator. Um, so definitely I encourage folks to, to, uh, to do a little bit more digging about that. It's very interesting. Uh, the film, the film is called the woman who poked the leopard. Okay. There's a, there's a thing that Museveni, um, says, uh, that you shouldn't poke the leopard's anus referring to himself as the <laughs> leopard and, uh, Stella oh, come on. You're continues telling me to poke his anus his over and anus over. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, just a very, very inspiring, you know, uh, I think like a life-giving project in the end. Um, uh, so I don't know. I don't know if uh, circumstances of life will enable me to kind of step away and, uh, mm -hmm. I don't know, give any kind of like background support, even if it's just as, you know, like uh, do the cooking at home and make sure the kids are fine and all that. But uh, yeah, I just, I just need a break. You know, I want to be kind of like a dad and more present and uh, more faithful to my own interests, you know, listen to music more, that kind of stuff. That's what I'm hoping for. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, after a decade of, you know, investing yourself into challenging systems of authority and mobilizing and, you know, the stress uh, that that brings on and even the fear and of some of the trauma that you've, you've dealt with it. I imagine that um, having, being able to support it from a distance or support, uh, art that's doing something that you find meaningful um, in the way that you just described would be very welcome for you. If, um, if anybody is listening that uh, has trauma, be it, you know, kind of like religious trauma that, uh, you know, from your youth uh, or political trauma or whatever kinds of trauma, uh, I really encourage undertaking EMDR eye movement desensitization and reprocessing uh for me that's that's been like one form of uh mm. psychological support that has really um enabled me to get back in my own body and uh rediscover who i am and like uh reclaim what i've lost that's i've heard a little bit about that i, I mean i don't know that now's the time to get into what that is or all the science behind it, but that is something that I've, it sounds like that's a uh, growing in popularity when it comes to recovering from traumatic. Yeah. I've heard, of, I've heard the name come up several times here recently too. It's uh, it's used for many things, even, uh, you know, performance anxiety. Um, if you don't do well on exams, uh, cause you can't focus uh, all kinds of stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like, uh, what I would love from you guys is like, uh, this, this conversation took such a serious turn and I mean, y'all make fun of, y'all make fun of 
Christianity so much and so well, and I want to do that with you <laughs> before we get off the phone. <laughs> <laughs> we robbed you of your chance to make fun of something. Oh, I'm so sorry. I feel bad. It did take a serious tone. I, I think your story is so fa- incredible and the fascinating. It's, it's Phil. You're like someone who. It's weird. There's not often those people who bridge a gap between people that you have like a, a lot of respect for that you've looked up that you look up to that you learn a lot from that also can simultaneously be your friends. Um, and you're, you do cr- like kind of bridge that gap. And that, so that's, I wanted to get into your story because I think it's, it's done a lot for me and helping even me grow in, in, in my beliefs and, and seeing how what's important to you has affected your life and the way it's changed you. I just get that little serious point out of the way. I also failed to note uh, at the beginning when we were talking that it's speaking of just being friends, right? And um, it, uh, even though you're someone who I, I love to hear from and pick your brain on important topics, you're also someone who, uh, you know, I, recently you were visiting New York and I told that story rec- about doing, like, being at a bar in, uh, in New York and doing mm. a spit take on a whole bunch of strangers uh, all over their faces and food and uh, horribly <laughs> embarrassed myself. And you were the per- you were there that. with me on that. We were visiting you in New York <laughs> while you were here. And, uh, I'm glad that you were there for that. <laughs> yeah, that was beautiful. I think I think the like just I mean yeah the the spitting was beautiful, but also like what happened afterward. You know, you were just like I'm so sorry, and you couldn't <laughs> stop apologizing. And then you I think you bought them like a round or something. Uh, oh, yeah. That was that was wonderful. Um, to me, appetizer. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think, you know, uh, a big ditto to everything, uh, all the bromance that you're putting out there. Um, (laughs) one, one very bromantic thing that we did together was 11th commandment news. We created this, uh, the onion for, you know, Christian making fun of like American evangelicalism, uh, which I think like, yeah, like I threw it up on like WordPress or something and then didn't back up anything and so like when the domain name got canceled like we lost everything or something <laughs> but uh <laughs> um, well, we i recently mentioned uh and i said it ambiguously on a, a previous guest i think it was when we were i don't remember maybe scott rogers but we we were oh no dan uh kozu maybe but we had yeah. talked about you were um, saying you were like the babylon b yeah, we we yeah, we were like it. No, but we had started that, and then Babylon B started pumping out all their shit, and we were like, and that's when Babylon B didn't come. The, the true colors hadn't shown yet, and they were just kind of, mm-hmm. seemed like they were just joking on Christian culture before they turned into like obviously just more right wing comedy. It's gross and boring. Mm-hmm. Um, but that yeah, so uh, I mentioned that previously. That was and that was. That was fun. I feel like it now with Babylon B going so poorly, uh, this is something that should have a bit of a. Yeah, yeah someone needs to do it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it would be great if we knew anybody that had a podcast that was about growing up Christian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we might be able to get some content out there. Maybe we need to put out the word, start a, a, a group for, uh, for people pushing headlines, getting edgy with it. You just make the fake headlines because nobody reads the articles anyways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I, th- I mean, The Onion has been doing that for generations, right? 
just like you know 200 word articles it's all about the headline yeah it is it it the amount of times that people don't actually click into (laughs) so there's a lot of funny stuff in the articles sometimes too yeah yeah you're usually just scrolling through facebook or passing by and you go well that's funny and then you're like maybe i'll read that later and then you definitely won't so we should if we do this we need to put a lot more work into our headlines than we do our articles maybe even throw in some trolling comments about how it's clear that people aren't reading the articles so it becomes that little gem that somebody finds on the internet yeah, like, and you know they're just like who, who are these guys that like they're so pretentious you know they just think they're so funny that they have to troll themselves just so that i find it like five years later yeah my favorite my favorite headline i think was one that jesse made which was uh high school teen blesses congregation with 11 minute spirit-led guitar solo yeah (laughs) (laughs) oh kill me yeah (laughs) that was a good one we had one about uh about feeling, I don't know, feeling the Holy Spirit while spanking your children too. Uh, was one. Of them. Uh, <laughs> I wish we could recall more than we had. I, I only recall. Yeah. I think we, we probably have a thread somewhere where some of it lives still. I know. In the archives. Maybe, Zuckerberg archives. Maybe we got to bring it back. I think there's uh, a lot to offer here, especially now. I mean, you, with the, the growing disillusionment of christianity with millennials it's uh in gen zers uh, the irreverence is taken well now particularly mm-hmm. so the more casey what about better. what about wichita uh what's like the most you know ironic or disgusting kind of christian trend around you oh boy uh, well there's <laughs> there's those big hats that women wear like the brunch girl hat i don't know if that's a christian okay. thing but i don't like it is it the head covering? <laughs> no, there was a okay, so here's a good one. So we Wichita has and, and really anywhere out here. I mean, this is a grain belt. There's these huge, huge grain elevators all over the place here, right? You know, they're massive and they they store grain of different varieties in these things. And then, you know, they're always next to a train yard so they can pump them in train cars and out they go. And I don't know if all of them are still in use nowadays or if some of them are shut down or what, who knows? Anyways, they're, they're just like these massive monstrosities that you can see from miles and miles away. I mean, they're the <laughs> structures by far. And so one of the ones that's well within view of downtown and pretty much anywhere else in Wichita, you get above like third story elevation, mm-hmm. you're going to see this thing. They decided to, uh, Wichita's like really put a lot of effort and money and stuff into cleaning the place up and really, you know, bringing in more businesses and stuff. It's really good overall. They decided that they were going to do a giant mural on the side of this grain elevator, which you know, that's a big undertake. It's a big, so they brought in, they, I don't know what the selection process was like or something, but they hired this, uh, um, Latino guy who's an artist to do the, uh, the, the, the painting and, you know, design the artwork and then under, you know, oversee the painting of this mural and everything. And it was kind of like an ode to the, Uh, you know, Central and South American immigrants and stuff that built large portions of the railroad in this type side part of the country, like in the 1800s and stuff. 
which was pretty cool. I thought, I mean, it seems like a, a, a just a, a very non-controversial way to honor people who com, you know, are built part of the community that we're in and people lost their minds. What? Because <laughs> they're like, because it was like what the articles and stuff that were originally written about it, like underscored the fact that they were, you know, it was immigrant workers that, that built this thing and it was to honor them and stuff. And they're like, they should be honoring American workers, Americans. Mm-hmm. And it was the dumbest thing. It was like, I, I would have loved to have cornered a bunch of the people complaining and just be like, what era do you think this was talking about? Like, do you have any ideas? Cause I guarantee you all of them thought they were talking about like 1984 or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But uh, it was funny, like, seeing posts about it on Facebook and stuff and just seeing like I I had a guy who routinely solicits my company for donations and support and stuff for like local charity things that they do and and stuff they do like I guess I better keep it vague anyways (laughs) this guy popped up on Facebook with like this super America's going to hell and this is this is where the leftists want to take the country over a mural. <laughs> I was like, mm-hmm. don't come asking me for donations. I know who you are now. <laughs> so like dumb. Pretty classic. <laughs> it's a cool mural. Uh, you probably look it up on uh, Google Images, I would imagine. <laughs> I'll ask you for a link later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Phil, I want to know if you have anything to... Uh, any. Anything to part ways with, with words, final words before we close it out here. I feel like we've been talking for a minute, but is there anything that you would like to share with us before we close out? I don't, links, the stuff that places people can follow you or just general sentiments. Oh, um, I'm pretty bad at social media. Um, I'm probably going to kick myself later and, and be like, oh, I should have told people to follow me here. Well, we get time um, later. If you throw it to us, <laughs> we'll put it in the show notes. You mentioned beautiful troubles. Sounds like they're doing some cool work. Uh, I don't know. If, I don't yeah, know yeah. Uh, I, I, like I've plugged a lot of things that um, I didn't really come here to plug, you know. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm happy to. I, I guess basically, I would like to um, chat with anybody that wants to talk about, you know, how they've gone through their ex-evangelical you know journey and um what it's meant for them and uh if you want to make fun of you know awana or whatever with me like <laughs> I'm, I'm really open to that stuff uh it gives me a good laugh it's very healing um no uh i mean you can share any of those links yeah but uh i just want to say that i appreciate you guys i i like this show it's like one of my go-to podcasts uh oh, when nice. i get the time um, you know, I, I can't listen to all, but I'm selective and you have some great ones there. You have some really interesting people on the show. Um, I get a great laugh every now and then. Um, and yeah, I think it's also, it's, it's something that's healing for people, um, to, uh, know that they're not alone and, you know, questioning what they've, uh, been taught, you know, what they've uh, grown up with. Um, and also man, like the nineties and early two thousands is just like a weird, weird time. Yeah. Uh, just really, really weird, really, really <laughs> weird. Um, and to just like reflect on it and be like, wait, that was also within my lifetime. 
uh, <laughs> as a young person, you know, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, it's just really interesting and, um, yeah, much appreciation. Well, thank thanks you. for having me on guys. Yeah. Thanks for hanging out with us, Phil. Sorry. We went too serious, but, uh, maybe no, no, not at all. Not at and, all. And, uh, make fun of some stuff. Maybe once we re- restart our uh, <laughs> 11th commandment news, we'll have to do an episode of headlines. Yeah. Well, I'm glad the, the tech worked for us also. I know this has been a long time in the making. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Well, thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time.